U.S. fighter pilots have shot down another object high in the sky, this one over Alaska. It was the size of a small car, a lot smaller than the Chinese balloon shot down last weekend. The Pentagon says it was destroyed because it posed a threat to civilian aircraft. Today is Friday, February 10th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. What we know about the object coming up. The U.S. Agency for International Development has deployed teams to some of the Turkish cities hit hardest by the earthquake this week. The conditions have been very difficult. The temperatures are very cold here. It's not an easy situation at all. But the teams are still hopeful. The FBI is reported to be conducting a search of former Vice President Mike Pence's home in Indiana. And eggs are expensive, but chicken wings are getting cheaper. Welcome news for Americans expected to down a nearly $1.5 billion lot of them this weekend, which is the Super Bowl weekend. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden has ordered the military to shoot down an unknown object over Alaska. The White House says that for the last 24 hours, the Defense Department had been tracking the unmanned object that was traveling at an altitude of about 40,000 feet. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports the incident this afternoon took place less than a week after fighter jets shot down a Chinese spy balloon that had flown across parts of the U.S. White House spokesman John Kirby says the Pentagon has not confirmed whether the object was a balloon, but it was traveling at an altitude that made it a potential threat to civilian flights. Out of an abundance of caution and at the recommendation of the Pentagon, President Biden ordered the military to down the object, and they did. And it came in inside our territorial waters. Kirby says the military is working to recover the debris. He also said the object was roughly the size of a small car, much smaller than the Chinese surveillance balloon that the military shot down over the Atlantic Ocean last weekend. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The FBI's found an additional document with classified markings in former Vice President Mike Pence's Indiana home. Pence's advisor, Devin O'Malley, says the Justice Department completed a thorough and an unrestricted search of five hours. Classified documents were previously found at the homes of President Biden and former President Donald Trump. The discoveries have raised concerns about what appears to be a systematic problem in how classified materials are secured at the highest levels of government. Some dramatic rescues are unfolding more than four days after the magnitude 7.8 earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Adnan Mohamed Korkut, a teenager who spent 94 hours under rubble in bitterly cold weather and consumed his own urine to survive, was found alive under his collapsed apartment building in Turkey and reunited with his mother. His story is becoming increasingly rare, though the death toll now exceeds 23,000. A judge is allowing prosecutors in the seditious conspiracy trial against leaders of the Proud Boys group to introduce dozens of private text messages. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports these messages form the backbone of the Justice Department's case for the defendant's role in the Capitol riot two years ago. Members of the far-right Proud Boys group exchanged text messages on the Telegram app in the weeks leading up to the assault on the U.S. Capitol. Judge Tim Kelly says many of those messages are fair game for the jury because they convey information about the defendant's state of mind in the days before January 6, 2021. One member of the group wrote it was time to stack bodies at the Capitol, which drew no response from the Proud Boys leaders on the chat. Defense lawyers say there was no plan to store the building. They'll resume cross-examination of an FBI agent Monday. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. It's NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Just one week after sub-zero temperatures froze Massachusetts, today we have record high temperatures for this day in history. In Worcester, the National Weather Service reports the city broke a 114-year-old record when it hit 56 degrees this afternoon. Providence and Hartford also hit record highs. Boston reached 60 today and tied the record that was set in 1990. Roxbury's Reggie Lewis Track and Athletic Center is in need of major upgrades, including a roof replacement. That's according to a committee reviewing the facility. The panel is calling for the state to remove the cap it imposed on income from rentals of the building. Interim president of Roxbury Community College, Jackie Jenkins Scott, directed that committee. She says the change would generate money that could be reinvested. If we could raise money and it goes to support the building, the purposes of the building, it reduces the amount of money the state has to contribute to the building. Jenkins Scott says it will take $10 million in state funding to make the necessary repairs to the center. She says about 110,000 people used the Reggie Lewis Center last year. The Cambridge Police Department now has its first all-electric marked police cruiser. It hit the streets for the first time yesterday. The brand-new Ford Mustang Cruiser is part of the department's traffic unit. Cambridge Police spokesman Jeremy Warnick says there will be more all-electric vehicles to come. Our goal, if this is an effective pilot, is to continue to roll these out and then ultimately by 2035 get to 100% zero-emission police cruisers. Warnick says the new cruiser will reduce gas usage by 2,800 gallons per year and reduce vehicle maintenance costs as well. 55 degrees now in the Boston area, downright balmy today. Temperatures should better line up with a month, though, tonight and tomorrow. Overnight lows about freezing, some strong winds around tonight. Tomorrow, sunshine again, windy, only about 40 degrees. And then for Sunday, another sunny day, turning milder, highs about 50. This is WBUR. It's 4.06. WBUR supporters include the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. If you are clearing the decks for your weekend, you can cross a Valentine's Day gift off your list right now because we are offering you a chance to order superior quality, really beautiful Winston flowers for your Valentine and support WBUR at the same time. You will need to choose your gift by noontime tomorrow if you want Winston Flowers to deliver the the flowers on Monday, the day before Valentine's Day. Lots of people do that to give your special someone more time to enjoy the gift. So you have four beautiful gifts to choose from. You can see them all online at WBUR.org. A dozen long stem red roses, two dozen long stem roses, the ultimate romance arrangement, and then the flower of the month subscription. You are strengthening journalism when you order them through WBUR. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. It's been five days since a magnitude 7.8 earthquake turned entire towns into rubble across Turkey and Syria. More than 20,000 people are known to have died. Search and rescue teams are still digging through piles of concrete. The U.S. Agency for International Development has deployed teams to some of the hardest-hit Turkish cities, including Adiaman. That team is being led by Stephen Allen, who is with us now. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hey, thanks, Ari. It's good to be here. Tell me what the last few days have been like. When did you get to Adiaman, and what did you find? Yeah, so we got to Adiaman uh, early yesterday morning. Uh, and I can tell you that the level of destruction and the level of just obvious 
uh, impact is really, uh, it's, it's almost overwhelming. At this point, five days in with freezing temperatures, how much hope is there for finding survivors who are still trapped? So hope holds out for a long time. Uh, and I can tell you the teams are very hopeful. Um, they're realistic about the situation. They recognize uh, the conditions have been very difficult. The temperatures are very cold here. Um, so it's, it's not an easy situation at all. But the teams are still hopeful. And in addition to the already staggering death toll, there's an even larger number of people who have been injured or displaced. So uh, USCID has pledged $85 million so far. But right now, how wide is the gap between the needs for shelter and medicine and the resources that are available? It's a great question. And I should clarify that, that our team is covering the effects of the earthquake in both Turkey and Syria. Uh, and the effects of this earthquake, you know, they don't recognize borders. Uh, they don't recognize kind of political boundaries. Um, and the needs on both sides of the border are very high. Uh, the $85 million that we have pledged uh, is, is not just a pledge. It, it will go out um, very, very quickly. Um, in Turkey, the government has very high capacity for this kind of uh, event. In this case, it's, it's such a large tragedy that they could not handle it themselves and ask for help. Uh, so there, there are um, tents and tent cities that have been set up. Uh, people are sleeping in makeshift shelters. Uh, there, there are people who are gathered uh, on the streets near their buildings, near places where they evacuated, um, sort of huddled together, uh, keeping warm. People have been evacuated from here to, to neighboring provinces and as far afield as Ankara uh, to receive medical treatment. Um, hospitals are very crowded in the region. There are uh, several field hospitals that have been set up and are still being set up um, to help with that effort uh, so that the work continues there. So what's your top priority in this moment? Right now, it remains uh, with the search and rescue team, uh, even as it's getting further from from the time when we'd expect to find a lot of survivors. If there's any chance of saving additional people, we really need to get that done. I know you've been with USAID for a number of years. Have you ever seen anything like this? I have never seen anything like this. Um, I have worked in uh, some, some pretty tough spots. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of uh, conflict zones and, um, and and that kind of thing. But this large-scale earthquake on, on this level, uh, I, I really don't think uh, many people have seen anything like this. Uh, it's really hard to describe uh, the level of devastation uh, that this has caused. And in the slightly more than 24 hours that you have been there in that town, can you tell me about someone you've met, somebody you interacted with? One is uh, somebody I talked to last night at a, at a dig site where we're trying to, to determine if there was any, if there were any survivors left in the building. Um, and it was a, a Syrian man uh, who came here to Turkey from Syria uh, as a refugee, and uh, his family was uh, killed in the in that collapse in the building. Um, and I just I, I could not help but think uh, how hard that must be uh, to flee one uh, impossibly difficult circumstance and to find yourself in uh, another impossibly difficult circumstance where you lose your family. Uh, and my heart really really broke for him and his family. Um, but I want to tell you also about the generosity uh, of the Turkish people. Um, you know, we have been received here with uh, nothing but generosity, um, open arms, uh, enthusiasm, um, everything we have needed, everything we've asked for, they have, they have uh, tried to provide. I really do want to highlight uh, that, you know, it's been uh, just a fantastic experience working alongside uh, Turkish crews and Turkish people.
That's Stephen Allen, who's leading the USAID team in Adiaman, Turkey. Thank you for speaking with us. My pleasure, Ari. This afternoon, U.S. fighter pilots shot down what the White House is calling a high-altitude object. It was about 40,000 feet over the northeastern part of Alaska. What it was exactly is not yet known. But if these vague reports have you wondering about whether this could be another spy balloon released by China, well, you're not alone. NPR political reporter Deepa Shivaram joins us now from the White House. Hey, Deepa. Hey, Juana. So, Deepa, what does the White House know about this object? Yeah, this all happened pretty quickly. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby just briefed reporters at the White House this afternoon and said that a, quote, high-altitude object was discovered over airspace in Alaska in the last 24 hours. It was found at about 40,000 feet, and Kirby said it posed a reasonable threat to safety of civilian flights. Last evening, a U.S. fighter aircraft went up and around the object, and the pilot's assessment was that it wasn't manned. And then this morning, at the recommendation of the Pentagon, President Biden ordered the military to shoot down this object. That happened at about 1.45 p.m. Eastern time today, so basically right before Kirby came out to brief reporters at the White House. The object landed in frozen waters off the coast of Alaska in the Arctic Ocean. And Kirby actually said it might be easier to recover the debris because it landed on ice. And the president just now briefly commented on the object getting shot down, and he said it was a success. Okay, Deepa, so is this another Chinese spy balloon? Yeah, at this time, the White House isn't calling it that. An official from the Pentagon also said he didn't want to characterize it at this time. But we do know that this object has some differences from that Chinese spy balloon that was shot down last week. So first of all, the size is different. Kirby said today that the object found was roughly the size of a car compared to the Chinese spy balloon, which was described to be about the size of two to three buses. And that spy balloon was also flying at a higher altitude compared to this object. And this object shot down today also appeared to have no steering capabilities, whereas the Chinese spy balloon did. It could maneuver itself on its own. But Kirby said that the object shot down today was, quote, at the whim of the wind. And this part is important. At the time, the White House doesn't know if the object is state-owned or private, but Kirby did have a message for whoever does own the object. We're going to remain vigilant about our airspace. We're going to remain vigilant about the skies over the United States. And as I said earlier, the president takes his obligations to protect our national security interests and the safety and security of the American people uh, is paramount. He's always going to decide and act in a way that is commensurate with that duty. So, Deepa, if they weren't sure what this object is or who owns this object, why did President Biden order it to be shot down? Right. So the big questions are, you know, whose object is this? Did it pose any kind of threat? And right now, Juana, we don't have the answers to those questions. Officials say they haven't ruled anything in or out on the purpose of this object, but they emphasize that there was a threat to civilian flights, which is why they acted so quickly to shoot this down. The White House said that because this object wasn't able to steer itself, it could have been blown into a flight path at any point. So acting fast was imperative in this case. And officials made it clear they're not tracking any other objects at this time. And what they're doing now is going to try to recover the debris from this object that's now sitting on the frozen waters and see what they can learn about it. All right. NPR's Deepa Shivaram, come back and update us soon. Thank you. Thank you.
A trio of amateur cryptologists cracked the code on a stash of secret letters written centuries ago. Then they figured out who wrote them, Mary, Queen of Scots. As NPR's Rachel Treesman reports, their findings will make it possible to learn even more about one of the most controversial monarchs in European history. Mary Stuart escaped a tumultuous life in Scotland, only to be imprisoned in England by her cousin, Queen Elizabeth I, for nearly 20 years. Mary wrote lots of letters before her execution in 1587, though historians don't know how many there were or where they all went. Now we're getting a fuller picture, thanks to the discovery of more than 50 new letters from a six-year period. At France's National Library, they were labeled as Italian materials, but as the codebreakers got to work, they realized they had stumbled upon something much bigger. This is uh, what I call Indiana Jones moments. That's George Lastry, a French computer scientist based in Israel and part of the team that cracked the code. When you find something from Mary Stuart and also you have so much material and it's, it's also a secret correspondence, it is something that you really feel that you have contributed significantly to historical research with new primary material of high importance. The three codebreakers are all from different countries and have different day jobs. One is a pianist in Germany, the other is an astrophysicist and patent expert in Japan. And they spent a year decrypting these letters in their free time. It's like solving a very large crossword puzzle. Lassery says they started with 150,000 symbols and ended up with some 50,000 words. And it took quite a while to transcribe them because we need to transcribe them in a format that can be processed by computerized algorithms. And then we had the code breaking itself, and then we had the decipherment and editing and interpretation of the letters. The letters shed more light on Mary's activities in captivity, especially her communications with the French ambassador to England and other officials. She was not a passive woman just complaining about her, her fate, and she tried to have some influence and to get herself released and maybe restored to the Scottish throne. And that's only some of what's in the letters. The Codebreakers hope to work with historians who can get even more out of them, a process that's already beginning. Rachel Treesman, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered in about 20 minutes, Philadelphians like to climb lampposts when their sports teams win. Go figure. This weekend, the Philadelphia Eagles are in the Super Bowl and the city is prepared. It's slathering lampposts with grease. That story is still to come. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. An up-and-down day on Wall Street. The Dow was up a half percent, 169 points. It closed at 33,869. S&P also gained ground, but it still posted its worst week since December. It rose nearly a quarter of a percent today to finish the day at 4,090. The Nasdaq lost territory. It gave up six-tenths of a percent to close at 11,718. Details are coming up on Marketplace, which starts at 630. 
Pretty gorgeous today with more nice weather ahead, just chillier. Tonight, clear skies, gusty winds, lows about freezing. Tomorrow should rise to about 40 with sunshine through the day. Still sunny on Sunday, inching up to 51 degrees, but then back to the low 40s for Monday. 55 degrees now in Boston at 420. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's current season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at BSO.org. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that help you think deeply about the world. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Send your gift almost anywhere in New England, and your support will enrich the lives of thousands of WBUR listeners in Boston and beyond. Order by noon tomorrow for Monday delivery of any of our four choices, including a dozen long-stemmed red roses. Visit WBUR.org. And now every year, thousands of people make it a point to order Valentine's Day flowers through WBUR. And here's your chance to do it this year. We're partnering once again with Winston Flowers to offer four gorgeous options. You can see them all at WBUR.org. A dozen long-stem red roses, two dozen red roses, the ultimate romance arrangement, which you have to see in order to believe it, and then the Flower of the Month subscription. All of these are your options. And when you get flowers through WBUR and Winston Flowers for Valentine's Day. You're supporting WBUR and independent journalism at the same time, and we are sure grateful for that. Here's the number, 1-800-909-9287, 1-800-909-9287, or go online at WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Today, thousands of children and teens going through mental health crises are stuck in hospital emergency rooms because psychiatric units are full. But in Massachusetts, some are offered an alternative, intensive therapy at home. From member station WBUR in Boston, Martha Biebinger reports, and a warning, there is a mention of suicide in the story you're about to hear. Counselor Laura Palazzotti lays a worksheet on the table in front of 12-year-old Haley. Have you ever done an emotional thermometer before? Haley shakes her head no. The oversized picture of a thermometer has blank lines for five emotions from the base to the top. Haley labels the bottom chill. In the upper red zone, she writes infuriated. Infuriated, okay, that's a good word. So when you're infuriated, how do you think you feel like physically? Like... My palms get sweaty, and I, like, make this face. (laughs) Haley scrunches her nose and frowns. And then what is a coping skill that you could use to calm yourself down? I could go on the trampoline. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Okay, so go on the trampoline. Can we come up with, like, one more? I could, like, talk with my mom. Awesome. Awesome, because Haley argued with her mom a lot before starting these sessions, Her anger turned into risky behavior that landed Haley in a hospital emergency room. We're only using Haley's first name to protect this 12-year-old's identity. 
things all came to a head one night last October. Haley's parents realized she'd snuck out to meet an older boy and posted sexually suggestive pictures. They remembered an earlier suicide suggestion, panicked, and drove to a local ER where Haley had a psychological evaluation. I didn't know if they were just going to send me home or if they were going to like put me in a really weird place. It was like really nerve-wracking. The hospital considered sending Haley to a psychiatric ward, but Deanna Pedro, who handled Haley's case, worried that would be too intense for a young girl whose only prior mental health care was with her school counselor. And then we put her on an inpatient psych unit with potentially kids who've been experiencing a lot of other things. So we reached out to Youth Villages. Youth Villages is one of four agencies Massachusetts hired to provide an alternative to psychiatric hospitalization. With rising depression and anxiety during the pandemic, there was a big need to help ease emergency room crowding. Youth Villages counselors meet families in the ER to map a plan for intensive home-based care. Paula Zadi, Haley's counselor, says the first step is a safety sweep. We look under rugs, we look behind picture frames, we look in the dirt of plants. Counselors see clients, often with family members, at home, three times a week, typically for three months. Haley has stopped sneaking out at night and sending suggestive pictures. More than 80% of youth who've tried home-based counseling in Massachusetts have not returned to the ER. Dr. Chris Kang is president of the American College of Emergency Physicians. We see more and more mental health patients, unfortunately, often languishing in emergency departments. And I've heard stories not just weeks, but months. And it's anywhere from California to Massachusetts to Alabama to Minnesota and Detroit. Kang says few states have programs like the one Haley is in because creating partnerships between hospitals and local mental health agencies is a challenge, as is funding them, even though care at home is much cheaper. Haley's mom, Carmen, choked up, talking about why sharing this experience is important. A lot of parents don't know what the kid's going through because they don't want to accept that your kids really need help. Going home rather than to a psych hospital won't work for every child in a mental health crisis. Still, some parent advocacy groups say their main complaint is that these programs don't have more openings. For NPR News, I'm Martha Biebinger in Boston. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. The story was produced in partnership with Kaiser Health News and WBUR. Ahead of the Super Bowl this weekend, a lot of people will be hitting the supermarket or their local carryout to get ready for a game day feast. Food prices are still sky high, but some favorite Super Bowl snacks are still selling at a discount this year. NPR's Scott Horsley has a scouting report on how to feed your friends and family during the game while keeping your wallet from getting tackled for a loss. Chef Aji Abbott doesn't expect to watch much of the Super Bowl on Sunday. He'll be too busy working at the Ooze and Oz Soul Food Restaurant here in Washington. We got the good stuff. We got mashed potatoes, sweet potatoes, greens, uh, macaroni and cheese. And chicken wings. Abbott expects chicken wings will be flying out of his restaurant's doors in the hours leading up to Sunday's kickoff. It was a finger food. You know, you pick it up with your fingers, you watch the game, you're cheering. It's easy to, you know, do both at the same time. You know, it's just good party food. More people are giving and going to Super Bowl parties this year. That's one reason the National Chicken Council thinks we'll gobble up nearly one and a half billion wings this weekend, 84 million more than last year. 
Another reason for the rosy forecast? Wings are on sale. After a spike in prices last year, fresh wings have come down 13%, and the price of frozen party wings has dropped by 28%. The wing price finally came down, but then eggs went up. Must be something to that. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Agricultural economist Michael Swanson of Wells Fargo says both have been affected by avian flu. But it takes a lot longer to raise egg-laying chickens, so farmers who raise birds for meat can recover much more quickly. Two completely different flocks. The eggs really got hit hard, but luckily for us, the, the chicken breast and all those other pieces have not gotten hit that bad. Swanson says there are other bargains to be found on the Super Bowl menu, but like a quarterback reading the defense, you have to keep your eyes open and pick your opportunities. For example, beer and soda pop have both gotten a lot more expensive in the last year. But wine prices have risen only slightly. Wine's a global market. So the U.S. wine producers are under a lot of competition, so they can't price up. So maybe some sangria to celebrate the Super Bowl. Swanson says bacon and shrimp have also gotten cheaper since last year's game. My wife's Colombian, so we always serve ceviche to go along with guacamole. So it's looking pretty good for us. Guacamole prices have also come down to earth. After a big jump last year, avocado prices have dropped 23%, thanks to supersized imports from Mexico. Lance Youngmeyer, who heads an association of produce importers, says some 250 million pounds of fresh avocados have crossed the border in recent weeks, like a big green running back bursting through the line of scrimmage. This is the second highest Super Bowl volume in history for avocados. Of course, guacamole is one of the absolute feel-good, fun-time snacks of all time. It's really popular this time of year, and everyone from the grocery stores to restaurants are trying to capitalize on that. Back in the cramped kitchen of Ooze and Oz restaurant, one of Chef Aji Abbott's assistants is slathering spicy sauce over a big bowl of raw wings, getting them ready for the fryer. Crisp, juicy, and always got that extra zip. That's why people say, ooh and ah. Ooh, that, that first bite, ooh, that's good. Last bite, ah, I'm full. Abbott has stockpiled nearly twice as many wings as he would on a non-Super Bowl weekend, and he suggests home party planners also go big, rather than run the risk of running out. Nothing wrong with leftover wings for breakfast, he says. It beats Monday morning quarterbacking on an empty stomach. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Alma at Central Square Theater, a poetic, funny mother-daughter story of immigration and the American dream. Begins February 23rd, centralsquaretheater.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The Pentagon says the U.S. military shot down an unknown object today flying in U.S. airspace off the coast of Alaska. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby described it as roughly the size of a small car and first detected it yesterday. The object was flying at an altitude of uh, 40,000 feet and posed a reasonable threat to the safety of civilian flight. This latest development comes after the U.S. shot down a suspected Chinese spy balloon last weekend. The Pentagon says that object was part of China's aerial spy program that has targeted more than 40 countries for years. The search for earthquake victims continues in Turkey and Syria, though hope of finding survivors is fading five days after the magnitude 7.8 Timbler struck. 
Earlier today, a family was found alive. A baby, a teenager, a family all pulled from the rubble. They'd been trapped in for days in cold temperatures. Officials there say the death toll has now climbed above 22,000 people. From Turkey, NPR's Peter Kenyon reports some of those who remain wonder if they'll ever have a home again. In Osmania, Turkey, after Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's visit Thursday, people huddled in tents or gathered near the food and water distribution areas. President Erdogan called the earthquake one of the greatest disasters in Turkey's history. 46-year-old Senar Civic was in Istanbul when her brother called her early Monday morning in a complete panic. She said she knew instantly that something terrible had happened. Because I never... Um seen him before like this. Five days after the quake, rescue crews are still pulling survivors from the rubble, some surviving more than a hundred hours in the cold winter conditions. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Osmania, Turkey. Stocks finished mixed to end the week on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. The city of Boston waived the residency requirements for many city employees last year in order to fill jobs. Well, the mayor's office says today it allowed 357 new workers to be exempt from the policy. That's more than five times the previous year. A spokesperson for the mayor says the exemptions were narrowly targeted to specific and crucial positions. A Cambridge-based research company will expand its COVID-19 data tracking. BioBot analyzes wastewater in more than 400 locations across the country to find just how much the virus is spread in those communities. The Centers for Disease Control announced this week it will extend its contract with BioBot for another six months to continue the research. BioBot says the extension will allow it to do wastewater analysis in more communities. And Massachusetts politicians celebrated the opening of a private fusion energy company today in Devons. The company's goal is to put atoms together to produce a net positive amount of clean energy. WBR's Paula Mora reports that scientists still have a way to go before the goal can become a reality. Commonwealth Fusion Systems is one of the seven companies around the country that received a federal grant to develop fusion energy. The company is working to build commercially viable fusion energy technology. U.S. Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm praised the research in Massachusetts, but added there's still a lot to be done. We do have to uh, figure out how to continually bring down the costs so that this is going to be an affordable effort. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey, Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll, and other elected officials attended the ceremony. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. In the forecast, it's going to be windy tonight, down around freezing. Tomorrow, another sunny day, only making it to about 40, though. Sunday, the sunshine's back. Should be beautiful and warmer, climbing to about 51 degrees. 55 degrees still in the Boston area at 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, a daily farm market featuring local produce and groceries with homegrown and homemade prepared foods. VolanteFarms.com. Just want to let you know that uh, some 2,200 people have already placed orders for flowers with us so far in this Valentine's Day fund drive. Some of them are ordering more than one arrangement. This is your chance right now to place an order for Winston Flowers by calling one 800 909 
1-800-273-9287 or checking them out and placing an order online at wbur.org. In front of me now, I'm lucky enough to have a bouquet of roses in full bloom. There are three different shades of red, including a deep red and kind of a raspberry color. And then the ultimate romance arrangement. I'll tell you about it later, but you can see it online. It is absolutely beautiful. So place your order, get gorgeous roses from Winston Flowers, and support WBUR at the same time. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, for more than 95 years supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at Mott.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The FBI conducted a search today of former Vice President Mike Pence's Indiana home. This comes nearly a month after a search by Pence's own lawyer found a small number of classified documents at the House. President Biden and former President Trump are also facing scrutiny for their handling of classified documents after leaving office. NPR Justice Correspondent Ryan Lucas joins us now with the latest. So, Ryan, what more can you tell us about the search of Pence's home. Well, this was a consensual search of Pence's home near Carmel, Indiana. Pence's team in the Justice Department had worked out the timing of all this ahead of time. Uh, a Pence advisor says the FBI had unrestricted access to the home and that the search lasted about five hours in all. Agents were looking for classified documents as well as materials that aren't classified but are subject to the Presidential Records Act. Uh, the advisor says agents took one document with classified markings and six additional pages without classification markings from the home today. Now, neither Pence nor his wife were at the house. Uh, they are both out of town visiting family on the West Coast. They're welcoming uh, a couple of new mm-hmm. grandchildren. But a lawyer for Pence was present at the home as agents searched the place. And this is all after Pence held his own search of his house last month, which did turn up classified documents, right? That's right. Uh, There was uh, that series of big discoveries, of course, of classified documents involving both uh, former President Trump and President Biden. After those happened, Pence decided it would be wise to do a search of his own home. So he had one of his attorneys come do it. That search turned up four boxes that were taped shut. The attorney opened them and found that there were classified documents in them. We don't have details on what exactly those classified documents were, but Pence's representatives say that it was a small number. Now, Pence secured those documents in a safe and then alerted the National Archives and the Justice Department, uh, and eventually the FBI came out to collect those. The search today is basically a product of that discovery. This is the FBI doing its due diligence uh, and checking the property itself. Okay, so is this the end of it for Pence, or will there perhaps be more searches? So Pence has uh, an office here in D.C. I'm told that his legal team is in talks uh, with the Justice Department to arrange a search of that office uh, at some point in the near future. Pence has pledged his full cooperation in this investigation, uh, as, of course, has President Biden in the investigation into the classified documents that were found at his think tank office here in D.C. And that, of course, is critical. That's a critical difference between uh, President Biden, former Vice President Pence, and the case involving Trump, of course, who did not cooperate with the subpoena to return classified documents from Mar-a-Lago. And that's, of course, what ultimately led the FBI to search Mar-a-Lago back in August. And separately, there's another legal news story involving Mike Pence today. He's also been subpoenaed by the Justice Department. What can you tell us about that? 
That's right. Uh, Pence received a subpoena from special counsel Jack Smith. He's the man who's overseeing two Justice Department investigations that involve former President Trump. Uh, the January 6th attack, one involving the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol and efforts to interfere with the presidential transfer of power in 2020, as well as the investigation involving classified documents uh, found at Mar-a-Lago. Now, we don't have a lot of details on this subpoena, but Smith clearly has questions for the former vice president and wants to hear from him. We know that folks who served as lawyers in the Trump White House have testified before the grand jury here in Washington, D.C. in recent months. But Pence, of course, is in another category. Yeah. Uh, he's the highest official yet from Trump's inner circle that we know to have been subpoenaed in this investigation. He's someone who, of course, was meeting one-on-one -on -one with the former president. So this is certainly a step forward for special counsel Smith's probe. NPR's Ryan Lucas, thank you. Thank you. The Adani Group is one of India's largest conglomerates, and it recently lost tens of billions of dollars in market value. An American investing group called Hindenburg Research accused the company of fraud in a report last month. Patty Hirsch and Darian Woods from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, explain what happened and what the fallout could be for India's economy. Hindenburg Research has this reputation for sniffing out overlooked or ignored problems in publicly traded companies. And it makes money by publicizing those problems and then short-selling the company's shares. Most of us, when we invest in a company, we bet on the company. We buy the company's shares in the expectation that the value of the shares will rise. And that's so that we can sell them later at a profit. Short sellers, on the other hand, bet against companies. They don't buy shares. Instead, they borrow them and then they sell them, expecting the value to fall. When it does, they buy the shares back at the lower price, return them to the person they borrowed them from, and they pocket the difference. And that's exactly what Hindenburg did with the Adani Group shares. And it was absolutely transparent about it. In its report, it said Adani was a massive con. And by the way, we intend to profit from telling you this. The Adani Group has denied pretty much everything in the report, but the damage was done. After it came out, shares of the group's flagship company fell 55%. So clearly Adani is in trouble. But what about India? The country competes fiercely with other emerging nations like Vietnam for foreign investment dollars, which means that it's under constant pressure to show that it's a safe place to invest. Shurupa Gupta is a professor of political science and international affairs at the University of Mary Washington. This is the last thing India needed. If you are looking for foreign investment, then you also want to signal that the policy framework in the country is strong. The Adani meltdown has done just the opposite. Now, allegations about dodgy business practices have swirled around the Adani group for years. But the report has collated and packaged these allegations, along with a few more, in a way that's thrown a fresh spotlight on several areas that always concern foreign investors. Sweetheart dealing, opaque accounting practices, cronyism, and perhaps most importantly, problems with transparency. But while Sharupa acknowledges that Indian companies may be less transparent than US or European equivalents, she says that the Indian government has been working to change things. Yeah, banks have been consolidated and regulators have been created and empowered. As for the concerns raised by the Hindenburg report about accounting practices and corporate governance... I don't think this reflects on how all Indian companies are run, because I think there are a number of companies that are run fairly well and that have done well internationally and they have good management. And I don't know that I would say that this is an indication of an endemic problem in Indian corporate sector as a whole. 
It's still not clear how the Adani Group's problems might ripple through the Indian economy. The companies that owns are already deep in debt, and it will now be difficult for them to borrow the money that they need to grow more. But there are many other conglomerates in India, like the Tata Group or Reliance Industries, that are generally trusted by foreign investors and could step in. As for the financial system, the Reserve Bank of India announced that none of the nation's banks are overexposed to Adani, so the damage should be limited. Shrupa says that with a bit of luck, this whole affair could actually benefit India by spurring further financial sector reforms. Paddy Hirsch, Darian Woods, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. With the Eagles taking on the Kansas City Chiefs in the Super Bowl this weekend, Philadelphia is gearing up for possible victory celebrations. A lot of cities host big championships, but how many have to grease the lampposts to keep ecstatic fans earthbound? NPR's Laura Benshaw reports on how Philly tries to manage folks who treat safety precautions like a dare. With the Eagles on a winning streak, the city of Philadelphia didn't waste any time preparing for the NFC Championship game a couple weeks ago. The police department will be greasing down those poles. Philadelphia police say they're planning to grease the poles. Police confirm officers are, in fact, greasing them poles. That means using paint rollers to apply biodegradable gear oil to lampposts and other structures in order to keep fans from climbing them. The city doesn't grease every pole, but the ones on Broad Street close to City Hall get lubed up. That area becomes the beating heart of victory celebrations when local sports teams win. We hear greasing the poles, we accept that as like a challenge, right? So it's like, yeah, grease them Johns up. 29-year-old Sean Hagen took a climb after the Philadelphia Phillies became league champions last fall. He says the pole was greased, but he was able to scale it using a garbage can like a step stool. In a video he took from the top, a sea of upturned faces are watching and rooting for him. I felt like Stone Cold Steve Austin. I'm sitting there slamming beers, had like Broad Street cheering me on, you know. The crowd was raging. It was unforgettable. Police later arrested Hagen and collared others who took their partying to new heights that night. But a judge dismissed the charges against him. Hagen says celebrating a sports victory feels like a rare occasion for his troubled city to blow off steam. With sports, you know, brings this city together. Seems like crime stops for the day. You know, everybody's tuning in and really tuning out all the negativity. With that in mind, Philadelphia generally tries to tamp down only the most destructive forms of celebration. For the NFC Championship game, it also put up barricades to keep crowds in the street and away from many of the buildings or street signs that could be scaled. But 
there were still some climbers and other forms of joyful rebellion. Some shot off large-scale fireworks, which are not legal, and police mostly looked the other way as crowds of people drank in the streets. A seven-piece brass band blocked traffic to march up Broad Street. But all of this was just a prelude to this weekend's Super Bowl. But that's not in Philly. It's in Arizona. What's up, Eagles fans? I'm Grace. I'm from Delco, but I go to college in downtown Phoenix. Local college student Grace Del Pizzo made this guide on TikTok for any Philadelphians coming to the game who might be wondering, what has this city got to climb? So you're not going to have much luck climbing a palm tree as those are massive, but since we're in the desert, all the other trees are tiny. All the light poles are taken and you just want to climb a tree, they're available. She says it's no broad street, but it'll do. Laura Benshoff, NPR News, Philadelphia. The British film director Hugh Hudson has died. He was best known for his first feature film, Chariots of Fire, which won Best Picture at the 1982 Academy Awards. It was based on the true story of British athletes running track at the 1924 Olympics. Hudson went on to direct more than a dozen other films, but it only seems fitting to play him out on the unforgettable theme to Chariots of Fire. Hugh Hudson was 86 years old. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Still to come on All Things Considered, economists face off about where the U.S. economy is headed this year. At stake are jobs, finances, and futures. That story coming up in about 15 minutes. Downright balmy today, 54 degrees now. Temperatures should better line up with a month tonight and tomorrow, though. Overnight lows about freezing, some strong winds around tonight. Then tomorrow, sunny again, windy, highs only about 40. For Sunday, another sunny day, turning milder, highs about 50 degrees. It's 449. Sending Winston flowers from WBUR supports your commitment to curiosity. Order by noon tomorrow for delivery Monday at WBUR.org. We'll hope you will order by noon tomorrow because a lot of people, just about half the people who call in for these uh, Winston flowers for Valentine's Day do ask for Monday delivery, and that way your Valentine can enjoy the flowers that much longer. Here's the number, 1-800-909-9287. You can also see the options and order yours online at WBUR.org. And you can also include a lovely little note in your gift for someone. Uh, we have a couple of examples here right now. We are, are, we're told that we can indeed share them. One says, you are kind, you're beautiful, you make everyone feel special. I know these flowers are a small thing, but I hope they make you feel special too. Another one says, uh, oh, this is from a apparent um, public radio fan, a big time fan. Wait, wait, don't tell me it's Valentine's Day here and now. It's been a minute, but all things considered, you're still on point as my Valentine's Valentine in this American life. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Place your order now. Thanks. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by One Fine Morning from Sony Pictures Classics. Leia Seydoux stars as a widow who juggles her young daughter, her sick father, and an affair with a married friend, now playing select cities. And downtown Boston's new third space, pop-up art gallery, live performances, lunch hangout, and Thursday night events. More at downtownboston.org slash third space. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. There's a bold idea taking shape in the lowlands of Guatemala. A research team is testing a new approach to detecting viruses, especially those that have pandemic potential. 
Their wager: the earlier you can spot a pathogen like that, the better the chances of stopping a global outbreak. For our series, "Hidden Viruses: How Pandemics Really Begin," NPR's Ari Daniel traveled to Guatemala to learn more. It's early in the morning, and I'm in banana farm country. I can already feel the sun cooking the air into a tropical soup. Crop dusters zigzag across the sky, and their shadows fly across the roofs of half a dozen low-slung buildings. One is a health clinic, and another is a research lab. About half past eight, I see a couple dozen young researchers spilling out of a building called R1. They jump into their three-wheeled tuk-tuks and fan out onto the bumpy rural roads. I'm in the one driven by Naori Rojo. She's out here in the community helping run a research study to test out what could be a clever way to look for viruses, all kinds of viruses, but especially those that could cause serious and widespread illness. Now we are heading to Chiquirines, visiting families that are participating in the study. The new approach being used in this study is something these families say they really like because it doesn't involve a single needle to draw their blood. And looks like we've arrived at our home. Rojo pulls up to a house with concrete walls, a metal roof. This household is one of the 60 homes in the area that's enrolled in the study. Rojo walks through the dusty yard. She passes a couple of pigs, skirts a band of patrolling ducks. When Rojo makes her way to the front of the house, she pulls out a big tube. Insectazooka, a play on the word bazooka, an anti-tank rocket launcher. But the Insectazooka's white PVC pipe, it doesn't launch rockets, it sucks mosquitoes. Basically, we use it to vacuum the mosquitoes alive. And keep them alive, at least for now. Because, of course, mosquitoes are a real nuisance here. Celia Alvarez is the 60-year-old grandmother who lives in this home, and she smiles as she tells me that she usually just slaps them into oblivion. (laughs) But Naori Rojo doesn't want squished mosquitoes because the real gold is what's in their abdomens. Esta sangre, Blood. And this is the clever idea that this research study is testing. Rather than drawing everybody's blood here the traditional way, the team wants mosquitoes to do the work for them, kind of like a swarm of flying syringes, to sample the blood of all the people and animals within a household, so that later, when they analyze that blood, they can look for any viruses the mosquitoes may have slurped up, those we know about, and maybe one day, those the world has never seen before. Grohop's colleague switches on the insectazooka and starts sweeping the device into the dark corners of the house, under the beds, into the crannies, vacuuming up the mosquitoes that lurk everywhere. Dr. Edwin Asturias tells me that collecting mosquitoes and looking at the viruses they're picking up from this community, it's no accident. He's an infectious disease pediatrician at the University of Colorado, and he co-founded Fun Salud, this clinic and research center, a decade ago. So personally, I have to confess that I basically grew up in this area. Rural Guatemala, Astoria says, is a good place to look for spillovers when a disease crosses from animals into people for two reasons. The first actually has to do with all the people and animals living so closely together. 
because they are in a crowded condition, the ability for any pathogen to move from the animals to the human is much higher. Viruses move between humans and animals often. The vast majority of the time, nothing troublesome happens, but there remains the possibility. The more you give the virus the chance to interact with humans, the more it's going to adapt to sort of be amongst the humans, mutating in a way that may become dangerous. Remember, that was most likely the deal with COVID, a particularly successful viral spillover from an animal into a person. And Astoria says there's a second reason why it's worth doing disease surveillance in rural Guatemala. And that's because many people here suffer from high rates of malnutrition, which makes them more vulnerable to disease. And therefore, you know, it's just a vicious cycle of malnutrition, infection. And that weakens people's immune systems, which means it's possible for viruses to sit and stew for longer. And therefore, if there's things that are going to emerge in the next few years, it's better if you keep an eye on them. And researchers here think that the blood the mosquitoes are sipping will help them do just that. By revealing, says Rojo, which diseases are in play in both animals and people. The vacuum finishes yanking the mosquitoes from their hideouts. The operator quickly screws a cap onto the end, trapping them inside. Is there a mosquito in there? Oh, wow, there are a few mosquitoes buzzing around. Look at that. Unharmed, happy. <laughs> Silvia Alvarez, the mom, is pleased. They'd be welcome to vacuum my whole house, she says. With that horde of insects in hand, it's a quick drive to the lab, where they're plunged into a deep freezer. 15 minutes later, they'll be dead. They're putting them under a microscope now. And that female looks like it's got a full full body of uh, blood, kind of swollen abdomen. Researcher Cecilia Gonzalez puts the female onto a piece of absorbent paper, tweezers in hand. Separamos el cuerpo de la cabeza. So she just took off the head. Lo tratamos la manera de... She's now just smushed the mosquito onto the piece of paper. A tiny droplet of blood seeps out, and it soaks into the paper. Looking at that crimson dot, I can't help but wonder, is this the one containing some dreadful virus? To know for sure what viruses, if any, this mosquito method is able to pick up, this and other samples will be shipped to the University of Colorado to be analyzed. So far, the researchers have been able to detect a couple of animal and human viruses in blood harvested from mosquitoes elsewhere, but the team's still testing and refining their approach here. Edwin Astorius. It's a very interesting and innovative way of sort of monitoring our surveillance. If it proves to be right, we have to still prove the concept. But I'm very confident that the technology that we are developing is getting us to sort of detect pathogens faster. We have to be on the lookout, says Asturias, all the time, because the stakes for missing something small couldn't be bigger. Ari Daniel, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station 
And from Progressive. Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Live Nation, presenting Chris Stapleton's All-American Roadshow with Charlie Crockett and the War and Treaty on Friday, June 9th, LiveNation.com. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Less than a week after the U.S. shot down a Chinese spy balloon over the Atlantic, the Pentagon shot down an unmanned object high above the frozen waters around Alaska today. The White House says the object was traveling at an altitude that could pose a threat to civilian aircraft. It's Friday, February 10th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a rare look into the earthquake zone in rebel-held Syria. It's been difficult to get news out and disaster aid in. Last year, prices seemed to be spiraling out of control in the U.S. Two economists go head-to-head about where the country is going this year. On the day in which we're celebrating unemployment being at a 50-year low, this is only three years after the scariest economic moment of my lifetime. News headlines are coming up next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Pentagon officials are following up on the announcement that just before 2 p.m. today, the U.S. shot down what is being described as a non-maneuverable, apparently unmanned object off the coast of Alaska near the Canadian border. Not clear as whether this was in any way related to the Chinese surveillance balloon shot down earlier last week. In both cases, the objects were downed by U.S. fighter planes. Brigadier General Patrick Ryder says the object was first detected just a day ago. On February 9, North American Aerospace Defense Command detected an object on ground radar and further investigated and identified the object using fighter aircraft. The object was flying at an altitude of 40,000 feet and posed a reasonable threat to the safety of civilian flight. Ryder, along with White House officials, says the decision to shoot down the latest object was made by President Biden. Recovery operations are reportedly underway to learn more about the object and perhaps its origin. The Memphis Police Department is asking a Tennessee regulating body to decertify six former officers fired after the killing of black motorist Tyree Nichols. Katie Reardon from member station WKNO has more. If the Peace Officer Standards and Training Commission revokes the officers' professional licenses, they will no longer have credentials to be police officers in the state of Tennessee. The Memphis Police Department submitted a decertification request for five of the former officers last month. Those officers are shown on video brutally punching, kicking, and striking Tyree Nichols with a baton and have been charged with second-degree murder. 
This week, the department asked that another officer who was involved in the initial traffic stop also be decertified. The local district attorney says his office will review all prior cases involving the five charged officers. For NPR News, I'm Katie Reardon in Memphis. The White House communications director says she'll step down at the end of the month. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports the resignation of Kate Bedingfield comes amid other administration departures, including President Biden's first chief of staff, Ron Klain. Kate Bedingfield is a longtime aide to Biden, dating back to his time as vice president. In a statement, Biden said Bedingfield has been a key part of advancing his agenda, calling her a loyal and trusted advisor through thick and thin. Bedingfield will be replaced by Ben LeBolt, a former Obama administration aide who oversaw the president's effort to confirm Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. LeBolt will also be the first openly gay White House communications director. NPR's Windsor Johnston. The FBI is confirming it's found additional documents with classified markings at the Indiana home of former Republican Vice President Mike Pence. The FBI search today followed the discovery by his lawyers last month of sensitive documents there. Pence advised says the Justice Department searched the home for about five hours and removed one document with classified markings and six additional pages. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 169 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The head of the Massachusetts State Police is retiring. The Healy administration said this afternoon Superintendent Colonel Christopher Mason will step down next Friday. Mason had been on the job for more than three years and was a member of the state police for three decades. As superintendent, he oversaw updates to training and implementation of a body camera program. A Massachusetts agency that helps residents get health insurance is expecting a surge of new enrollees this spring. The Massachusetts Health Connector helps people find subsidized coverage when they can't get it through an employer or other sources. It expects a surge because pandemic-era Medicaid rules are ending. Those rules prevented state Medicaid programs from dropping anyone who no longer complied with eligibility rules. Super Bowl weekend is coming up, if you hadn't heard. Anticipation is high in Massachusetts, even without the Patriots in the game. It'll be the first time people in the state can legally place bets on the winner. Last month, the state began to allow its three casinos to offer in-person sports betting. The facilities anticipate a high number of wagers. Massachusetts Gaming Commission Chair Kathy Judd-Stein is confident ahead of the game that things will go pretty smoothly. As a regulator, the Gaming Commission feels um, very prepared, and it's our understanding that the folks at each casino that has the license to perform retail are ready for the anticipated crowds. Online betting in Massachusetts will be launched in March. In the forecast, spring-like temperatures today, but temperatures should be pretty fickle over the weekend. Tonight falling to about freezing. Tomorrow topping out only about 40, a good share of sunshine. Sunday sunny again, climbing to just about 50, and then back to the low 40s on Monday. 54 degrees now in Boston at 506. WBUR supporters include Sony Pictures Classics, presenting Turn Every Page, a new film by Lizzie Gottlieb about the 50-year relationship between writer Robert Caro and his editor Robert Gottlieb, now playing in theaters. This is 90.9 WBUR. Before you start your weekend, take one minute right now to do what some 2,200 people have done so far in this fun drive. They have placed orders for flowers with us uh, through Winston Flowers, and you have your choice of four different arrangements. You can see them at WBUR.org and place your order by calling 1-800-909-9287. I have in front of me in the studio right now a bouquet of roses in full bloom, three different shades of red, including a kind of 
raspberry color and a deep red, and then the ultimate romance arrangement, an elegant show of lime green uh, flowers, plum-colored ranunculus, lavender lilac, and orchids as well. Place your order now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you so much. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. We're going to get a rare glimpse into the earthquake zone in Syria where it has been incredibly difficult to get aid in and news out. The earthquake that ravaged the border areas between Turkey and Syria has killed at least 23,000 people, left tens of thousands injured, and even more without homes. But while rescue crews and donors have access to Turkey, the politics of Syria's civil war have limited supplies there. NPR's Ruth Sherlock got access across the border today, and she found people desperate for help. She joins us now from back over the border in Turkey. And Ruth, first of all, for a number of years now, Turkey has only rarely allowed journalists to cross the border and to go into northern Syria. So why did Turkey decide to give you access? I think their change of heart here is that the Turks, you know, they want to show the world just how awful the situation is over there after the earthquake and encourage foreign countries to send aid. Turkish officials took us inside and at the border we met Ashraf Acha, who oversees Turkish aid into one of the governorates of Syria that's been badly hit by this earthquake. He spoke through an interpreter. Syria is in need of the most, you know, help from international organizations that that we just can try to you know heal our wounds he's saying that you know turkey needs time to heal its own wounds and the main point here is that five days after this earthquake now almost no international aid has reached northern syria five days i mean why is that why is it so difficult for aid to reach this area It's partly context. This region is still controlled by militias that oppose the Syrian government. And even though there's millions of people living in this region now, aid groups say the Syrian regime has been trying to starve and deprive them for over a decade. Over the years, the United Nations has kept open one route for aid supplies from Turkey across the border, uh, even though Syria and its allies like Russia and China oppose that. And uh, even the ability to keep this one crossing open goes up for a vote at the UN Security Council every now and again. Some say the UN could act on its own, but that would open up a precedent for other countries for violations of their sovereignty, and the UN doesn't want to make that happen. So, look, it really comes down to this quite complicated geopolitics with people caught in the middle. What I can tell you about this situation is, after this earthquake, is that the roads that the UN uses to bring supplies in across that one crossing into Syria are damaged, and they're not allowed to use the seven others from Turkey. You mentioned that people are the ones caught in the middle here. And it makes me wonder, as you were speaking to people there, what did they tell you that they need? Well, we traveled to the town of Jinderis, and there were some places still standing there, but there were also dozens of other buildings that had just turned to rubble. At one point, a woman, Kausa Mohammed, approached us, and I asked her what happened to her house in the earthquake. She says it was destroyed and asks if we've brought any aid. I ask her what she needs. She says, 
things to keep them warm in the cold winter, medicines, everything. And a little boy just chimes in nearby, everything. The head of the local council there told me, you know, if the international community had sent aid, like better machinery for digging people out of the rubble, he thinks that many more people would be alive now. He thinks now that's too late. Um, it's probably too late to rescue those still trapped but that there's no basics for the living. He says people are even starting to fight over just a single cup of drinking water. Oh my gosh, this sounds horrific for the people there. As you looked around, how bad was the damage? You know, the destruction is massive. Whole neighborhoods are devastated, and we're told so far 850 people have been found dead. We met Zakaria Tabah, who lost his father, wife, and two-year-old boy, Abdul Hadi, in the earthquake. The last night, I put him in my arms and slept with him. Uh, in the morning, I found him on his bed, dead. He looked really dazed and he said, like so many of the people we met there, that he still can't believe what's happened. That's NPR's Ruth Sherlock talking about her trip into Syria's earthquake zone. Ruth, thank you for sharing these stories. Thank you very much. In case you hadn't heard, the Super Bowl is this weekend with Kansas City and Philadelphia facing off in a test of skill and grit on the field. Well, there's a different, slightly less glamorous face-off going on right now in the field of economics. And we've all got skin in the game, as NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith reports. Welcome to the Economic Super Bowl of 2023, where economists face off about where the country is headed. The two teams, Team Recession and Team Soft Landing. At stake, what this year is going to hold for all of us, our jobs, our finances, our futures. What a turn of events here. Last year, prices seemed to be spiraling out of control. The Federal Reserve stepped in and did drive back inflation, but the economy also took a hit. Question is, how much of a hit? Are we in the recession red zone? To help us tackle this question, we have our team captains. First up, Dana Peterson, chief economist at the conference board. We have to look at data. I mean, we we do have these forward-looking indicators, and all of them are saying recession. Team recession. That is what Peterson sees in the data right now. But she has a challenger from the University of Michigan, economist Justin Wolfers. You're talking to an economist who is going to be happy and tell you that I see really good things. So are you team soft landing? I'm just team America. (laughs) He's team soft landing. So two teams, one economy, thousands of screaming data points. Let's move the chains. Kicking us off is team recession. Economist Dana Peterson says the red flags are everywhere. Manufacturing, construction, the housing market. But most importantly, the consumer, the consumer. Us. We are the star quarterbacks of the U.S. economy. Our spending makes up more than 70 percent of the economy. When we spend less, the economy shrinks. And Peterson says it looks like that's happening. With prices rising, a lot of households have cut back. Consumer spending data for December was not great. And businesses, if they get this whiff of weakness ahead, they're going to pull back. But the silver lining here is that so far this recession looks mild. The economy is taking a hit, but is not getting sacked. Here's the hit, and a line. Brady's up. That's good to see. But But there is another team on this turf, a team that believes the U.S. economy can pull off the Hail Mary pass of slowing down enough to bring prices down, 
but not enough to pancake economic growth. Team soft landing. Justin Wolfer says he is betting on the MVP of this economy, the job market. We're celebrating unemployment being at a 50-year low. This is only three years after the scariest economic moment of my lifetime. AKA the beginning of the pandemic, when unemployment rates hit 14%. Wolfer says last year was an economic comeback story. Inflation came down, the economy grew, and the job market thrived. He's got it! 20, 10, He's got it! Touchdown, Titans! A miracle! If you had said in three short years will yield an unemployment rate that earlier generations of economists had said was impossible, I wouldn't have believed you. Wolfer says this economy has shown it has grit and hustle, and we should just relax and take the win. But economist Dana Peterson points out it is still the first quarter of the year, and every sports fan knows things can turn around very fast. You know, show me the money. We need to see the data. And we don't have a lot right now. Titans have a miracle left in them. If they do, they need it now. Peterson says we're just too early in the game to make the call. Stacey Bannock-Smith, NPR News. The Golden Gate Bridge may be the most iconic monument on the San Francisco Bay, but for decades, a smaller spectacle has persisted along the East Bay shoreline, Whimsical sculptures of biplanes like the Red Baron perched on pier pilings flying above the water. Tyler James Orr was the man behind those sculptures, and he died on January 31st. He would sculpt these large planes out of the stretched canvas, wood, plaster, all kinds of found materials. And he would throw on like um, boots and like put a figure in it. And then he'd put them out on the pier posts in the bay. Matt Reynoso of the Compound Gallery knew Orr for years. He invited Orr to the gallery for a talk a few years ago, and as Orr clicked through slides and a projector, he described the placing of his very first plane. Uh, I got some friends. We got two boats, ladders, and made a pontoon and started out on a high tide. Orr explained that he didn't have a gallery to store his growing collection of sculptures, so he made the bay his gallery without asking for permission. And one of the people with us I left on shore with the paperwork. It was all fake paperwork that UC Berkeley had bought, the city of Berkeley bought. Orr was born in Joplin, Missouri, along Route 66. He said he always wanted to come to California, especially after hearing the song. Get your kicks on Route 66. He moved to Berkeley in 1965 and set up a studio in the basement of an old Victorian home. After years of showing in conventional galleries, he began installing his sculptures on pier posts in the 1970s. Not just biplanes either. He built human figures, sharks, Viking ships, a UFO with battery-powered Christmas lights. And when Mother Nature would wash one away, he'd put another in its place. The best piece I've ever done is the next piece I do. I expect Mother Nature to take care of everything I put out there. (laughs) He wasn't very precious about his work. He didn't over-conceptualize his work at all. He he made it, put it out there. The last of Orr's Red Barons is still standing in the bay outside Emeryville. Matt Reynoso, the gallery owner, says... Mother Nature will eventually drive it away, but he says it might be fitting to install something more permanent to memorialize the sculptor who brought the East Bay shoreline to life with his ephemeral art. Tyler James Orr was 82 years old. 
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in 2014, Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 was shot down over eastern Ukraine. There were no survivors. Ukraine alleged this week that Russian President Vladimir Putin was directly involved. That story coming up in 15 minutes. And just after that, the many moons of Jupiter. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Join artists, educators, and counselors and turn your potential into a rewarding career. Explore programs at leslie.edu. An up-and-down day on Wall Street today. The Dow was up a half percent, 169 points, to close at 33,869. S&P also gained ground, but it still posted its worst week since December. It rose nearly a quarter of a percent to finish the day at 4,090. The Nasdaq lost territory. It gave up six-tenths of a percent to end the week at 11,718. In the forecast, we've got more mighty fine weather ahead this weekend, even if it's not as warm as today has been. Tonight, clear skies dipping to freezing. Tomorrow and Sunday, the sunshine returns. Tomorrow is the chillier day, about 40 degrees for a high. Sunday, rising to about 51. This is WBUR. It's 520. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that help you think deeply about the world. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Send your gift almost anywhere in New England, and your support will enrich the lives of thousands of WBUR listeners in Boston and beyond. Order by noon tomorrow for Monday delivery of any of our four choices, including a dozen long-stemmed red roses. Visit WBUR.org. And we hope you will make that order right now because it does two wonderful things. It tells your Valentine how much you think of that person. And if you want to send it to more than one Valentine, more than one important person in your life, please do. We've had a lot of people calling in and doing that as well. It also pledges support to WBUR at the same time. So you're supporting independent journalism and you are telling your feelings to your Valentine through these gorgeous flowers from Winston Flowers. Here's the number, one 800 9 and check out the four different kinds of arrangements at WBUR.org. They're all the highest quality. They are all beautiful. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform dedicated to helping businesses find the right people. Businesses can attract, screen, and interview candidates all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Yosemite is renowned for its towering sequoias and waterfalls and polished granite domes. It became a national park thanks to the lobbying of conservationist John Muir, whose legacy lives on in the organization he founded, the Sierra Club. That group has been wrestling with the racist and exclusionary attitudes embedded in some of its founding ideals. 
Ben Jealous was recently chosen to be the group's executive director. He starts the job in two weeks, and the former head of the NAACP is the first person of color to lead the Sierra Club. He's here to talk about the road ahead. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Before we get to your role as leader of this organization, take me back to your childhood. What was your relationship to the natural world like? Oh, you know, my parents had met in Baltimore. Their marriage was against the law. Because it was an interracial marriage. Yes, because mom's black and dad's white. And we ended up on the coast of Northern California. I was literally spent my childhood, you know, playing hide and seek uh, between redwood trees and Big Sur. You spent most of your career fighting for equality and justice for people. Do you see a role at the Sierra Club as a pivot from that work or a continuation of it? Oh, it's a, it's a continuation of it and a continuation of my life. My first order of business at the NAACP was launching our climate justice program. We had just had Hurricane Katrina, and there was a, a deep awareness that poor communities generally and black communities historically because of segregation were in very vulnerable places, places like the Lower Ninth Ward. So, you know, that part of it, I'd say the climate change has pushed a lot of things together. There's a awareness that right now the best thing that we can do for peace in our time to assure the future of the human race is to fight to make this planet healthier. It's dying. That's a big task. And so... How do you view your job at this particular moment as the leader of the Sierra Club? What's the concise description? Yeah, the concise description is to keep doing what we've been doing. We, the last 10 years, have run the most effective anti-climate change campaign in the United States. We shut down more than 250 coal-fired power plants. We also played a key role in passing the Inflation Reduction Act and the Associated Infrastructure Bill. And those have concentrated capital for essentially creating a tipping point in our economy, taking our economy from an economy, frankly, that's been fueled by industries that treat both the wild and people as disposable, and shifting towards an economy where we will soon be creating more jobs that help save the planet than ones that help destroy it. There is this growing recognition that the American environmental movement was in many ways founded on exclusionary and racist ideas. Dorsita Taylor of Yale University has done some of this research, and here's something she told me in an interview last year. We see a taking of Native American lands to turn into park spaces that are described as empty, untouched by human hands, pristine, to be protected. So this is where the language of preservation really crosses over into this narrative of exclusion. And so how do you now build something inclusive on that foundation? Well, that's the challenge for our country. My dad's white, my mom's black, my father's grandmother, you know, flirted with eugenics. It was a a parlor game amongst wealthy whites in this country in the 1920s. The reality is that if you want to rebuild any American institution, whether it's the U.S. Congress or it's the Sierra Club or it's Harvard University, you're going to have to reckon with the history uh, of those institutions. For the Sierra Club right now, the reality is that the urgency of the work on the ground has required people to really shift, I'd say, in many ways from Hurricane Katrina forward 
to figure out how to work across old lines of division. I think leading an environmental organization in this moment can be so reactive when there is every day another hurricane, wildfire, or flood. How do you avoid that gravitational pull and take the big picture? You've got to do both. We've got to work more on resilience. That's certainly one of the conversations when people are scared because the big storms keep coming. So you've just got to deal with the real, you know, while you're focused on achieving great aspirations, what keeps us focused is knowing that we have specific goals that we have to meet to keep the planet from getting above one degree warmer, two degrees warmer, three degrees warmer. That's kind of a scientific equation with this crazy X factor that is politics. And so it it keeps us very busy working to create consensus, not just in Washington, but in every state capital, in every major county, right down to small towns, about the steps that need to be taken. The good news is that where as environmentalists, and I've been active in this movement since I was a kid, you typically show up with sticks. The Inflation Reduction Act gives us the chance to show up with carrots. You know, you typically talk about stopping industry, and that means jobs. And now we get to talk about starting new industries. There is a chance to really build an inclusive economy. Ben Jealous is the incoming executive director of the Sierra Club. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for talking to me. So, Ari, I've got a question for you. Shoot. When you're out walking your dogs, do you ever just, like, start singing to them? I think that's like shower singing. It's universal. Everybody does it. Don't you? I do, and I have to confess, I cannot carry a tune, but I know it's a thing. And one musician who recently made a live performance debut caught the attention of one of our fellow dog owners and producers. Let's take a listen. Going on a puppy walk. Gotta put my little harness on. That's from an Instagram and TikTok account called What Else? Puppy Songs. So March of 2020, I had a lot of time on my hands. So I was trying to get more of my music out on the internet. I needed practice producing my own tracks. That is creator and musician Matt Hobbs. He lives in Atlanta with his wife and their two senior dogs, Marley and Lenny. And the dogs quickly became like an endless source of inspiration. I was singing to Marley on top of the sofa. I'm a little pup. I was like, man, I want to make a track out of that. And so he did. And I love belly I don't know. It was just an experiment. And then I did a few more. And from here, we're just going to let his work speak for itself. There's When Mom Comes Home. When Mom Comes Home. Amazon man. I'm gonna get you someday, Amazon man. <laughs> we promise we're never gonna poop on the floor again. Oh yeah, I've heard that too. Okay, we might still do it sometimes when it's late at night. Or it's <laughs> There's more than 150. Hobbs now has more than half a million followers on TikTok, now me too. And after performing in his first live show in New York City, he hopes to do more. It's, it's wild because I've made music for myself, with other artists, for theater, for advertising. And it's just remarkable how the 12-second songs about the dogs are the things that stick. Well, maybe it's not that wild considering how many very good boys and girls there are out there. Please rub my belly, give me that belly rub. This is NPR News. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974, in Cambridge, Brighton, and at cambridgenaturals.com. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Russia launched a new wave of rocket attacks on cities across Ukraine this morning. The latest assault comes amid expectations of a renewed Russian offensive, as we hear from NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Russia's defense ministry made no mention of the airstrikes in its daily briefing, but for months, Moscow has openly pursued a strategy of attacking critical Ukrainian infrastructure, leaving millions without power, heat, or water in the depths of winter. Ukraine said its defenses repelled the vast majority of what it called a massive attack of Russian cruise missiles and Iranian-made drones, yet power outages were reported in several major cities. The attacks follow a European tour by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in which he urged Western powers to donate more weapons. Russia has poured additional troops into the fight in East Ukraine in what analysts say is a bid to notch symbolic victories ahead of the date marking the first full year of the war. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Speaking to the country's governors gathered at the White House this afternoon, President Biden told the crowd he won't back down on raising the nation's debt ceiling, despite opposition from many Republican lawmakers. Now there's talk, and I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think my colleagues are really serious about it. I hope they're not, about holding the debt hostage to cuts they want to make in certain things that I may or may not want to make. And uh, we've never reneged on our debt. Our credit has been good for well over 200 years, not one single time. But parties have agreed to leave talk of Medicare and Social Security off the table, but GOP calls for budget cuts before agreeing to make good on existing debt remain a major sticking point. Stocks finished mixed today to end the week on Wall Street. Weakness in tech shares pulled the Nasdaq lower, while energy companies rose along with the price of crude oil. The Dow up five-tenths of a percent. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Reggie Lewis Track and Athletic Center in Roxbury is in need of major upgrades, including a new roof. The committee reviewing the facility says the repairs will cost some $10 million. It's calling for the state to remove the cap it imposed on income from rentals of the building. Interim president of Roxbury Community College, Jackie Jenkins-Scott, directs the committee. She says lifting the cap would generate money that could be reinvested. If we could raise money and it goes to support the building, the purposes of the building, it reduces the amount of money the state has to contribute to the building. Jenkins Scott says about 110,000 people used the Reggie Lewis facility last year. More endangered right whales have been spotted off the coast of Nantucket. An aerial survey team for the Northeast Fisheries Science Center spotted the whales yesterday south of the island. So the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is asking vessels in the area to slow down for the next two weeks to avoid injuring the animals. There are already mandatory slow zones for ships and vessels in Cape Cod Bay until the 15th of May. Whales started to show up in the area earlier this winter for their annual migration. The Cambridge Police Department now has its first all-electric marked police cruiser. It hit the streets for the first time yesterday. The brand-new Ford Mustang Cruiser is part of the police traffic unit. Cambridge Police spokesman Jeremy Warnick says there will be more all-electric vehicles to come. Our goal, if this is an effective pilot, is to continue to roll these out and then ultimately by 
2035 get to 100% zero emission police cruisers. Warnick says the new cruiser will reduce gas usage by 2,800 gallons per year and reduce vehicle maintenance costs. In the forecast, it's going to be windy tonight, down around freezing. Tomorrow, another sunny day, only making it to about 40 tomorrow. And then for Sunday, the sun shines back. Should be a beautiful day, climbing to about 51. This is WBUR. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Taking one minute right now just to tell you that if you're clearing the decks for the weekend, you can cross a Valentine's Day gift off your list right now because we're offering you a chance to order superior quality Winston flowers for your Valentine and support WBUR at the very same time. Place your order right now. You can even write a little note, as many people have. Uh, One person says, Happy Valentine's Day, Mom. Thanks for showing us all what real love is all about. Uh, You can send one to your mom, your dad, your best friend, uh, your partner, whoever it happens to be, check out the four beautiful gift arrangements online at WBUR.org and make your call right now. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. You must place your order by noontime tomorrow in order to get the flowers there by Monday, which is what about half the people do. Call right now. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In 2014, Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 was shot down over eastern Ukraine, killing all 298 passengers and crew. It was a flight from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur, downed over an area controlled by Russian-backed separatists. Investigations have shown that the plane was brought down by missiles supplied by the Russian military, Now investigators say Russian President Vladimir Putin was personally responsible for the decision to supply it. NPR's Tim Mack was at The Hague this week for that announcement. Hi, Tim. Hey there. The investigation's been going on for years. What has it uncovered? So the investigation team is led by the Netherlands, and it's supported by investigators from Malaysia, Ukraine, Australia, Belgium, all countries which had victims from the flight. The investigators found the kind of missile that was used to bring the flight down, where it was launched from, and the missile system, and the fact that the missile system was returned to Russia afterwards. Now, a Dutch court has already sentenced three men to life in prison in absentia for their roles in the downing of the flight. But this week, the investigation team said their probe has stalled after eight and a half years. They couldn't identify the specific soldiers that fired what are called Buch-Taylor missiles. Uh, that's the system that took down the plane. I asked Dutch prosecutor uh, Digna uh, von Buchelar why. For war crimes, you have to know, we have to know more about what happened in that Buch-Taylor. What was the order? What did they know about their uh, target? How was the information? And because we do not have the crew, we do not know that. 
The answer to those questions, the investigators say, are in Russia. And the Russian government has declined to cooperate with these investigators, not to mention has previously denied having any involvement. Well, what did investigators say about Russian President Vladimir Putin's role specifically? Well, they held what could be their final press conference this week at The Hague, and they released a new piece of information, this time implicating Vladimir Putin personally. They said they had a phone call intercept from 2014 that indicated that Putin personally approved the delivery of the missile system used to shoot down the commercial flight. That call shows a Russian official alluding to Putin, investigators say, and announcing that only Putin personally would be able to make a decision as important as transferring powerful anti-aircraft systems to the Russian-backed separatists in eastern Ukraine. And they also played a second intercepted phone call that included Putin himself. It shows Putin getting briefed by a pro-Russian separatist in 2017. That's three years after the downing of MH17. That's the flight that we're talking about. It illustrates how intimately involved Putin was in the war and all its details. Now, investigators clearly wanted to put all this information in the public record, but they admit two things, that the current evidence does not reach the high bar necessary to prosecute anyone else, and that Putin himself has legal immunity under Dutch law because he's a sitting head of state. Well, how are families of victims reacting to these developments? Well, obviously, there's some frustration that the investigation is now stalled. I spoke to Pete Plug about this. His brother, his brother's wife, and his nephew were on the plane. He said he was shocked about how important a role Putin had played in the shootdown personally. He always denied any responsibility. He always denied that they were present in Ukraine. He lied, he lied, he lied, but now we heard, and we saw it in the tapped conversation, that he, he absolutely was involved in what happens in, in Ukraine. Pluk said that having the truth out about Putin, about those responsible for the killing of his brother, was almost as important as additional prosecutions. He said he wants Putin to admit Russia was responsible, that the omission itself would help give him and other victims' families closure. NPR investigative correspondent Tim Mack at The Hague. Thank you. Thanks so much. The first moons ever discovered around Jupiter were found by the famous astronomer Galileo over 400 years ago, and scientists keep finding more. Researchers have just added a dozen additional moons to the count. NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports on why Jupiter has such an abundance of them. Jupiter has so many moons, Scott Shepard struggles to keep track. With this new haul, we're up to, I believe, 92. Actually, I have to check that. I think it He was. reaches over to his computer. We're in his office at the Carnegie Institution for Science, Earth and Planets Laboratory in Washington, D.C. I have a web page that shows all the ones. And yeah, so 92 is the number that we have right now. He and his colleagues are tracking some more that should put the total over 100 once they're confirmed. Shepard has been discovering Jupiter moons for over two decades, using better technology and bigger telescopes to keep spying more Jupiter moons every few years. He says a moon is just an object that orbits a planet. Beyond that, it's not well defined. Like the rings of Saturn, there's thousands if not millions of particles in the rings of Saturn. Are each one of those a moon? Uh, No. But how big does something have to be to count? 
He says it hasn't really been discussed. The one thing I would say is that the International Astronomical Union has decided that they're not going to name any moons smaller than about one kilometer in size. Some of the moons he's found around Jupiter are about that size. That's like half a mile across. You could walk it in 12 minutes. Shepard says from Earth, these little moons look like flecks of light. And so you know these objects are kind of jaggedy edged, elongated type objects with probably many craters on their surface. They're fragments or shards. He says the way they move around Jupiter in clusters suggests that each cluster is the remains of what was once a larger moon. So we think originally there were only a handful of parent moons that have been bombarded by either other moons or comets over the age of source and have broken apart. And that's why you get all these very small fragments. So it seems those original larger moons met a violent end, but where they came from is mysterious. These outer moons, we believe, were not formed with the planet, but we think the planet captured them. He'd love to know what they're made of. If he could locate one that was in a convenient spot, maybe a spacecraft could take a peek at it on its way to do another mission. There's several new spacecraft that are going to Jupiter in the next several years. Like the European Space Agency's JUICE mission that's scheduled to launch in April. And next year, NASA is sending a probe to one of Jupiter's big moons, icy Europa. And so the more of these moons we find around Jupiter, the more likely one will be in the path or near where the spacecraft is going. So that's one of the hopes. Another researcher who studies Jupiter outer moons is Marina Brozovich at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. To her, they're time capsules from the solar system's early days. She's particularly intrigued by one that's weird. It's orbiting really far from the planet, and it's in the region where everybody else is going the opposite direction. So it's kind of driving against the traffic. She points out that scientists keep discovering more moons around Saturn, too. Before this most recent crop of new Jupiter moons, Saturn held the record for the most known moons. It's kind of this little kind of race between Jupiter and Saturn who has more moons. She says Neptune and Uranus should also have lots, but they're so far away it's hard to see them. Although Scott Shepard did tell me that his team had just made a bunch of observations of those two planets. So stay tuned for possibly more moons. Nell Greenfield Boyce, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. There's public outrage in Japan over discriminatory remarks about sexual minorities from the prime minister's office. The response to this scandal is giving LGBTQ advocates hope that this may be an opportunity for change. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports. Masayoshi Arai was the prime minister's executive secretary and speechwriter. He told reporters off the record last week that not only would he not like to live next to an LGBTQ couple, he would even hate looking at them. Before he fired Arai, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida distanced himself from his comments. My administration aims for a sustainable, inclusive society that recognizes diversity, he told reporters. Japan is the only member of the G7 group of industrialized nations that does not permit same-sex marriage. Gon Matsunaka, director of a civic group called Marriage for All Japan, says he felt angry, resentful, and helpless about the secretary's comments. 
He and other LGBTQ activists went to the prime minister's residence, demanding the government legalize same-sex marriage. The Kashida government has been saying that it wants to be an administration that embraces diversity, but the exact opposite message was sent out from the prime minister's office. Polls show most Japanese support legalizing same-sex marriage. But Prime Minister Kishida suggested this month that it could negatively impact Japanese society. In the city of Fukuoka, a man named Kosuke and his partner are suing Japan's government, claiming the ban on same-sex marriages is unconstitutional. They gave only their first names because they're worried about discrimination. Kosuke says they got a certificate from their city recognizing their partnership. At first, I thought applying for this would be the same as getting married. However, I realized that the reality is that it has no legal effect. The ruling Liberal Democratic Party, or LDP, is considering passing a law to increase awareness of sexual minorities ahead of a G7 summit that Japan is hosting in May. But Kosuke and his partner don't think it would help them. The legislation is just a political performance. It's not for us. In my view, they are making a law to put Japan in a better position politically. Kanako Otsuji is an LGBTQ rights activist and Japan's first openly homosexual member of parliament. She says Prime Minister Kishida faces pressure from inside his own party to oppose same-sex marriage. It's said that his faction is essentially liberal, but I think he has done his best not to touch issues that divide LDP conservatives, such as same-sex marriage. I've never felt he wanted to tackle these issues proactively. But, Otsuji says, Kishida can't afford to ignore public opinion. And she's encouraged that foreign governments have weighed in on the issue. U.S. Ambassador to Japan Rahm Emanuel and U.S. Special Envoy to Advance the Human Rights of LGBTQI plus persons Jessica Stern encouraged Japan's government this week to pass the legislation raising awareness of sexual minorities. Ambassador Emanuel notes that Japan has partnered with the U.S. on the international stage. Advocating for anti-discrimination and for an inclusive value system where everybody counts. Here at home in Japan, that's not true as it comes to the laws. And it's time that the laws in Japan reflect their advocacy overseas. There's a gap. And it's time, he says, to close that gap. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, decoded letters from Mary, Queen of Scots, shine new light on one of European history's most controversial monarchs. That story coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR. In sports, Celtics host the Hornets tonight, 7.30 tip-off. And the forecast, after a gorgeous day today, we should have more nice weather ahead, just chillier. Tonight, clear skies, gusty winds, down about freezing. Tomorrow should rise to around 40, sunshine through the day. Still sunny on Sunday, inching up to 51 degrees, then back to the low 40s for Monday. 48 degrees in Boston now at 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, partnering with the National Society of Black Engineers to accelerate STEM education and careers. MathWorks.com slash NSBE. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR expresses your love for them and for stories that enrich your mind and your heart. Visit WBUR.org. 
We hope you will visit WBUR.org right now because we are in the midst of a tradition here at WBUR and inviting you to take part in that. Over the past couple of decades, tens of thousands of our listeners have sent Valentine's flowers from Winston Flowers and WBUR. Many of them have made it an annual tradition, and many are doing that right now. About 2,200 people have called so far. Many of them are repeat callers. And um, they have made it a tradition just the way you can make it yours right now. So see the flower choices and send your Valentine the perfect gift at WBUR.org. You can see them online right now. Four beautiful arrangements, a dozen long-stem red roses, two dozen long-stem red roses, uh, the ultimate romance arrangement with too many flowers to even count, and then the Flower of the Month subscription with a contribution of uh, $1,200. And, of course, what you're doing is supporting WBUR as well. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. It is the most wonderful time of the year for football fans. The Kansas City Chiefs are about to square off against the Philadelphia Eagles in Super Bowl 57. The game is on Sunday, but the awkward press scrums and corporate branded parties have been going on all week in and around Glendale, Arizona. We're joined now by Mike Sando of The Athletic, who has been in Glendale covering all of the action. Welcome. It is great to be here. Always love going to the Super Bowl. Always feels like a privilege to get to go. So uh, we don't have rainy skies or any calamities. It's been good so far. Even among those of us who are tried and true football fans, many probably haven't been to a Super Bowl. I mean, I was just scrolling through StubHub, and if I wanted to go today, it'd be, what, thousands of dollars? And it kind of makes me wonder, what is the crowd like? What kind of people are around this early? Well, the Philly fans bring their own style and flavor, uh, certainly. There's a reason they grease those lamp posts in Philadelphia so the fans can't climb them when they celebrate, right? <laughs> and then the Chiefs fans, obviously, is going to be a little bit more of a Midwestern flavor. And so you see all these different people. And then there's some people that, you know, are wearing stuff from other teams. They're just NFL fans or they were able to get tickets. But you're right, the investment is substantial. And Interestingly, in this stadium, actually, the space allotted to the media, there's two different places, there's press box and there's in the stands, is smaller because they're accommodating the demand for the game and and serving the paying customers. All right. I want to get into the football of it all a little bit. This is going to be an incredible matchup for a number of reasons, including the fact that there are two incredibly dynamic quarterbacks. You've got Patrick Mahomes of the Kansas City Chiefs, Jalen Hurts of the Eagles. I want to talk about them. They take two totally different approaches to football. Absolutely. The Eagles are much more of a running team on offense. The quarterback is a huge part of that. It makes them very difficult to defend in their own way. And Patrick Mahomes is just a magician. You know, really, I think he has enhanced his legacy through these playoffs by having the ankle injury, still finding a way. I mean, he's hopping around out there half the time and still making incredible plays that almost no one else could make. So I really, I mean, he's well on his way to the Hall of Fame already, but if he could somehow get the Chiefs to win this game, and get this thing done. I mean, he's really goes from being an elite company to almost uncharted company. And I say that even in relation to Tom Brady, because while Tom Brady went and and won three Super Bowls in his first six seasons, and Pat Mahomes is going to have three with either one or two wins in his first six seasons, the big difference is the Chiefs are not what the Patriots were on defense. I have to say, as somebody who spends a lot of Sunday and Thursday and Monday nights watching football, one of the big things that 
I'm probably going to be watching is the officiating because I feel like mm -hmm. fans have had a whole lot of questions about the quality of yeah. some calls. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, Commissioner Roger Goodell assured us that officiating's never been better at his press conference the other day. Kept a straight face while he said that. And really, you know, I think there's, I, I know this, there's always been complaints for 50 years that officiating's never been worse. Okay, everyone feels aggrieved. Everyone feels, uh, you know, like it's just not going well. But I think the big difference now is the fan can almost see the game better than the referees and the officials because so many people have their 70-inch TV with the highest HD resolution, With in a, especially in big games, playoffs, the, the networks have additional cameras there. And so we all feel so smart watching the game. We can see everything. You can almost look at every play and say, that should have been this, that should have been that. And you know that's a level of scrutiny that probably hasn't always existed. If you try to watch a game the way it looked on TV in 1990, totally different deal. Even 2000. You know, we didn't really have the HD until probably 2005 or 10, you know, before everybody had it. That's Mike Sando, NFL senior writer for The Athletic, covering Super Bowl 57 in Glendale. Mike, thanks and good luck on Sunday. Thank you. It's been more than a decade since Channing Tatum first starred in Magic Mike, a comedy based on his own pre-acting stint as a stripper. Audiences showered it with more than $100 million and did that again for a sequel, so Tatum's back with a film called Magic Mike's Last Dance. Critic Bob Mondello says, promises, promises. The first 17 minutes or so are everything a Magic Mike fan could wish. Mike's business ventures, both furniture and exotic dance related, have failed, so he's respectably clothed, and bartending at a charity function in Miami when he's recognized... Wait, I know you. You were a cop. Right? Is your arrested? What's your name? Kim? That was a bachelorette party. Let you off with a warning, right? She mentions Mike to their wealthy hostess, Maxandra, who is mid-divorce and wonders if Mike could stop by after the party to do that silly dance he did for Kim. Kim said that? It was silly? Yeah, she said it was a silly dance, but that it would get my mind off of things. And if she's right, I'm willing to pay six. You're, you're serious right now. You're going to pay me $6,000 to give you a dance? Yeah, but no happy endings, huh? Mike doesn't say yes, but locks the door, pours Maxandra, who's played elegantly by Salma Hayek-Penault, a drink, checks some shelving to see how well it's anchored, for reasons we understand, but Maxandra doesn't, and then... May I touch you? The seduction begins and builds from a sensual lap dance to a feverishly steamy, hip-thrusting, back-arching, pelvis-grinding, and even dolphin-diving climax. You'll want to savor it because there's nothing in the next hour and a half that remotely approaches it for entertainment value, including an ill-advised callback to its more memorable moves in a finale that is bigger and wetter, by which I'm afraid I mean rain-soaked, and not nearly as sexy. Director Steven Soderbergh and company seem to have decided, with a plot that heads off to London for a complicated story about revamping a stage show, that what's really been missing from Magic Mike movies is dialogue. Dialogue about empowering women. I want every woman to feel that a woman can have whatever she wants, whenever she wants. Dialogue about the show they're revamping, which is essentially about empowering women. So what's the show about? It's the same or will she marry for love or money? So what does she pick? Love or money? The real question is, why does she feel like she has to choose? Dialogue about empowering Mike and Maxandra, which is essentially about empowering women. You cannot say that what we've created so far isn't special. I'm not going to just let us give up on 
morning. Now, I'd like to say right here that I am all for all of that. But you know that adage about how dramatists should show, not tell? The one the first two Magic Mike movies made flesh, as it were, by leaving very little about male anatomy to the imagination? Well, this one is more about leaving very little unsaid. There is a mildly amusing dance routine on a bus and an audition sequence that visits London street corners and Italian ballet studios in search mostly of break dancers. But the buddy banter that made the first two movies pop when the dancing stopped? replaced by earnest declarations, and the sexy dance routines replaced largely by acrobatics. In terms of choreography, that may be, as the title of an early Tatum movie had it, a step up, but it's not rousing or arousing. And as charming and gallant and appealing as Channing Tatum still is, it means there's a bit less magic this time from Magic Mike. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world, where innovation meets the law. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Pioneer Charter School of Science, providing students with a rigorous college prep academic curriculum with two campuses serving Greater Boston and the North Shore. Apply online at pioneercss.org. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. For the second time in less than a week, American fighter jets have shot down an object flying over U.S. airspace. This time it was around Alaska. It's not known what the object is, what it was doing, and whether it was sent by a country or private owner. Our story is coming up on this Friday, February 10th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, thousands of children and teenagers are experiencing a mental health crisis and are stuck in hospital emergency rooms because psychiatric units are full. Some facilities in Massachusetts are offering an alternative. We hear about the U.S. Agency for International Development deploying teams to some of the Turkish cities hit hardest by the earthquake earlier this week. And chicken wings are getting cheaper. Good thing for Americans expected to chow down nearly one and a half billion wings this Super Bowl weekend. Crisp, juicy, and always got that extra zip. That's why people say, ooh and ah. That's coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Rescue workers are making a final push to find any survivors from this week's major earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Though with frigid weather and the death toll already well above 23,000, time is running out. 
NPR's Ruth Sherlock has been viewing some of the devastation, including the earthquake zone in Syria, which because of the country's civil war has had limited access. She says in both Turkey and Syria, conditions have deteriorated. We traveled to the town of Jinderis, and there were some places still standing there, but there were also dozens of other buildings that had just turned to rubble. The head of the local council there told me, you know, if the international community had sent aid, like better machinery for digging people out of the rubble, he thinks that many more people would be alive now. He thinks now that's too late. Um, It's probably too late to rescue those still trapped, but that there's no basics for the living. He says people are even starting to fight over just a single cup of drinking water. NPR's Ruth Sherlock. In Iran today, the government is marking the eve of Revolution Day with fireworks. Some Iranians, meanwhile, marking it by chanting freedom and death to the dictator. From Tehran, NPR's Mary Louise Kelly reports. Revolution Day here in Iran marks the anniversary of the 1979 revolution, which toppled the Shah and installed Ayatollah Khomeini as the first supreme leader of the Islamic Republic. Iranian flags and banners are flying, but many Iranians are not celebrating. Anti-government protests that roiled the country last fall have quieted on the surface, but as fireworks lit the sky above Tehran, the chanting began. Calls echoing through the night from open apartment windows. Death to the dictator, they're saying. Others called freedom. And in reference to the current Supreme Leader, death to Hamenei. Mary Louise Kelly, NPR News, Tehran. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton has agreed to pay $3.3 million in taxpayer money to settle a whistleblower lawsuit against him. Joseph Leahy of member station KUT has more on the tentative deal. Four former deputies sued the Republican Texas AG in 2020 after losing their jobs. They were among eight staffers who accused Ken Paxton of corruption, which has led to an ongoing FBI investigation. The preliminary settlement filed with the Texas Supreme Court includes an apology from Paxton but no admission of wrongdoing to their claims of bribery and abuse of office. Paxton has denied the accusations, calling them politically motivated. He remains under felony indictment in a 2015 securities fraud case, which has yet to go to trial. I'm Joseph Leahy in Austin. Prices at the consumer level took another bump up in December instead of falling as they did in the previous two months. Spending numbers for those months were also revised upwards. The Labor Department says its consumer price index rose a tenth of a percent. A mixed end of the week on Wall Street. The Dow was up, though, 169 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Just one week after sub-zero temperatures froze Massachusetts, today we notched record high temperatures. In Worcester, the National Weather Service reports the city broke a 114-year-old record for the day when it hit 56 degrees this afternoon. Providence and Hartford hit record highs today, and Boston reached 60 degrees to tie the record that was set in 1990. A Cambridge-based research company will expand its COVID-19 data tracking. BioBot analyzes wastewater in more than 400 locations across the country to find out how much the virus is spread in those communities. The Centers for Disease Control announced this week it will extend its contract with BioBot for another six months to continue the research. BioBot says that will allow it to conduct wastewater analysis in more communities. And Massachusetts politicians celebrated the opening of a private fusion energy company today in Devons. The company's goal is to put atoms together to produce a net positive amount of clean energy. WBR's Paula Mara reports that scientists still have a way to go before the goal can become a reality. Commonwealth Fusion Systems is one of the seven companies around the country that received a federal grant to develop fusion energy. 
the company is working to build commercially viable fusion energy technology. U.S. Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm praised the research in Massachusetts, but added there's still a lot to be done. We do have to uh, figure out how to continually bring down the costs so that this is going to be an affordable effort. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey, Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll and other elected officials attended the ceremony. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. 48 degrees now in the Boston area. Spring-like temperatures today, but they should be pretty fickle this weekend. Tonight, we should fall to about freezing. Tomorrow, topping out only at about 40, a good share of sunshine. Sunday, sunny again, climbing to just above 50 and back to the low 40s on Monday. It's 6.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at macfound.org. Taking just less than a minute now to tell you, before you start your weekend, you might want to take a minute right now to do what 2,200 people have done so far. They've placed orders for flowers with us for this Valentine's Day fun drive, some of them ordering more than one arrangement from Winston Flowers. So please order yours now. You can check them out online. They're all beautiful, all four of them. 1-800-909-9287 is the number. Check them out online at wbur.org. And remember, you'll need to choose your gift by noon tomorrow for Winston Flowers to deliver it on Monday, the day before Valentine's Day. And that gives the recipient, your special someone, more time to enjoy the flowers. Once again, check them out online at WBUR.org and make the call, 1-800-909-9287. Thanks so much. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. It's been five days since a magnitude 7.8 earthquake turned entire towns into rubble across Turkey and Syria. More than 20,000 people are known to have died. Search and rescue teams are still digging through piles of concrete. The U.S. Agency for International Development has deployed teams to some of the hardest-hit Turkish cities, including Adiaman. That team is being led by Stephen Allen, who is with us now. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hey, thanks, Ari. It's good to be here. Tell me what the last few days have been like. When did you get to Adiaman, and what did you find? Yeah, so we got to Adiaman uh, early yesterday morning. Uh, and I can tell you that the level of destruction and the level of just obvious uh, impact is really, uh, it's, it's almost overwhelming. At this point, five days in with freezing temperatures, how much hope is there for finding survivors who are still trapped? So hope holds out for a long time. Uh, and I can tell you the teams are very hopeful. Um, they're realistic about the situation. They recognize uh, that conditions have been very difficult. The temperatures are very cold here. Um, so it's it's not an easy situation at all, but the teams are still hopeful. And in addition to the already staggering death toll, there's an even larger number of people who have been injured or displaced. So uh, USAID has pledged $85 million so far, but right now, how wide is the gap between the needs for shelter and medicine and the resources that are available? It's a great question, and I should clarify that that our team is covering the effects of the earthquake in both Turkey and Syria. Uh, and the effects of this earthquake, you know, they don't recognize borders, uh, they don't recognize kind of political boundaries, um, and the needs on both sides of the border are very high. Uh, the $85 million that we have pledged uh, is, is not just a pledge. It, it will go out um, you know, very, very quickly. Um, in Turkey, 
the government has very high capacity for this kind of uh, event. In this case, it's, it's such a large tragedy that they could not handle it themselves and ask for help. Uh, so there, there are um, tents and tent cities that have been set up. Uh, people are sleeping in makeshift shelters. Uh, there, there are people who are gathered uh, on the streets near their buildings, near places where they evacuated, um, sort of huddled together, uh, keeping warm. People have been evacuated from here to, to neighboring provinces and as far afield as Ankara uh, to receive medical treatment. Um, hospitals are very crowded in the region. There are uh, several field hospitals that have been set up and are still being set up um, to help with that effort uh, so that the work continues there. So what's your top priority in this moment? Right now, it remains uh, with the search and rescue team, uh, even as it's getting further from, uh, from the time when we'd expect to find a lot of survivors. If there's any chance of saving additional people, we really need to get that done. I know you've been with USAID for a number of years. Have you ever seen anything like this? I have never seen anything like this. Um, I have worked in uh, some, some pretty tough spots. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of uh, conflict zones and, um, and and that kind of thing. But this large-scale earthquake on, on this level, uh, I, I really don't think uh, many people have seen anything like this. Uh, it's really hard to describe uh, the level of devastation uh, that this has caused. And in the slightly more than 24 hours that you have been there in that town, can you tell me about someone you've met, somebody you interacted with? One is uh, somebody I talked to last night at a at a dig site where we're trying to, to determine if there was any if there were any survivors left in the building. Um, and it was a, a Syrian man uh, who came here to Turkey from Syria uh, as a refugee, and uh, his family was uh, killed in the in that collapse in the building. Um, and I just I, I could not help but think uh, how hard that must be uh, to flee one uh, impossibly difficult circumstance and to find yourself in uh, another impossibly difficult circumstance where you lose your family. Uh, and my heart really, really broke for him and his family. Um, but I want to tell you also about the generosity uh, of the Turkish people. Um, you know, we have been received here with uh, nothing but generosity, um, open arms, uh, enthusiasm, um, everything we have needed, everything we've asked for, they have, they have uh, tried to provide. I really do want to highlight uh, that, you know, it's been uh, just a fantastic experience working alongside uh, Turkish crews and Turkish people. That's Stephen Allen, who's leading the USAID team in Adiaman, Turkey. Thank you for speaking with us. My pleasure, Ari. This afternoon, U.S. fighter pilots shot down what the White House is calling a high-altitude object. It was about 40,000 feet over the northeastern part of Alaska. What it was exactly? is not yet known. But if these vague reports have you wondering about whether this could be another spy balloon released by China, well, you're not alone. NPR political reporter Deepa Shivaram joins us now from the White House. Hey, Deepa. Hey, Juana. So, Deepa, what does the White House know about this object? Yeah, this all happened pretty quickly. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby just briefed reporters at the White House this afternoon and said that a, quote, high-altitude object was discovered over airspace in Alaska in the last 24 hours. It was found at about 40,000 feet, and Kirby said it posed a reasonable threat to safety of civilian flights. 
Last evening, a U.S. fighter aircraft went up and around the object, and the pilot's assessment was that it wasn't manned. And then this morning, at the recommendation of the Pentagon, President Biden ordered the military to shoot down this object. That happened at about 1.45 p.m. Eastern time today, so basically right before Kirby came out to brief reporters at the White House. The object landed in frozen waters off the coast of Alaska in the Arctic Ocean. And Kirby actually said it might be easier to recover the debris because it landed on ice. And the president just now briefly commented on the object getting shot down, and he said it was a success. Okay, Deepa, so is this another Chinese spy balloon? Yeah, at this time, the White House isn't calling it that. An official from the Pentagon also said he didn't want to characterize it at this time. But we do know that this object has some differences from that Chinese spy balloon that was shot down last week. So first of all, the size is different. Kirby said today that the object found was roughly the size of a car compared to the Chinese spy balloon, which was described to be about the size of two to three buses. And that spy balloon was also flying at a higher altitude compared to this object. And this object shot down today also appeared to have no steering capabilities, whereas the Chinese spy balloon did. It could maneuver itself on its own. But Kirby said that the object shot down today was, quote, at the whim of the wind. And this part is important. At the time, the White House doesn't know if the object is state-owned or private. But Kirby did have a message for whoever does own the object. We're going to remain vigilant about our airspace. We're going to remain vigilant about the skies over the United States. And as I said earlier, the president takes his obligations to protect our national security interest and the safety and security of the American people uh, is paramount. He's always going to decide and act in a way that is commensurate with that duty. So, Deepa, if they weren't sure what this object is or who owns this object, why did President Biden order it to be shot down? Right. So the big questions are, you know, whose object is this? Did it pose any kind of threat? And right now, Juana, we don't have the answers to those questions. Officials say they haven't ruled anything in or out on the purpose of this object, but they emphasize that there was a threat to civilian flights, which is why they acted so quickly to shoot this down. The White House said that because this object wasn't able to steer itself, it could have been blown into a flight path at any point. So acting fast was imperative in this case. And officials made it clear they're not tracking any other objects at this time. And what they're doing now is going to try to recover the debris from this object that's now sitting on the frozen waters and see what they can learn about it. All right. NPR's Deepa Shivaram. Come back and update us soon. Thank you. Thank you. A trio of amateur cryptologists cracked the code on a stash of secret letters written centuries ago. Then they figured out who wrote them, Mary, Queen of Scots. As NPR's Rachel Treesman reports, their findings will make it possible to learn even more about one of the most controversial monarchs in European history. Mary Stuart escaped a tumultuous life in Scotland, only to be imprisoned in England by her cousin, Queen Elizabeth I, for nearly 20 years. Mary wrote lots of letters before her execution in 1587, though historians don't know how many there were or where they all went. Now we're getting a fuller picture, thanks to the discovery of more than 50 new letters from a six-year period. At France's National Library, they were labeled as Italian materials, but as the codebreakers got to work, they realized they had stumbled upon something much bigger. This is uh, what I call Indiana Jones moments. That's George Lastry, a French computer scientist based in Israel and part of the team that cracked the code. When you find something from Mary Stewart and also you have so much material 
And it's, a, it's also a secret correspondence. It is something that you really feel that you have contributed significantly to historical research with new primary material of high importance. The three codebreakers are all from different countries and have different day jobs. One is a pianist in Germany, the other is an astrophysicist and patent expert in Japan. And they spent a year decrypting these letters in their free time. It's like solving a very large crossword puzzle. Lassery says they started with 150,000 symbols and ended up with some 50,000 words. And it took quite a while to transcribe them because we need to transcribe them in a format that can be processed by computerized algorithms. And then we had the code breaking itself, and then we had the decipherment and editing and interpretation of the letters. The letters shed more light on Mary's activities in captivity, especially her communications with the French ambassador to England and other officials. She was not a passive woman just complaining about her, her fate, and she tried to have some influence and to get herself released and maybe restored to the Scottish throne. And that's only some of what's in the letters. The Codebreakers hope to work with historians who can get even more out of them, a process that's already beginning. Rachel Treisman, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at 6.30, it's Marketplace tonight. After a dip in the number of publicly traded companies in 2022, more companies are set to make initial public offerings this year. That story and much more coming up on Marketplace in just about 10 minutes. It's 6.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bowery Boston. Presenting Steve Lacey, LCD Sound System, and Boy Genius at the stage at Suffolk Downs, June 16th to 18th. ResetConcertSeries.com. It's been an up-and-down day on Wall Street. The Dow was up a half percent, 169 points, to close at 33,869. S&P also gained ground, but has still posted its worst week since December. It rose nearly a quarter of a percent to finish the day at 4,090. The Nasdaq lost territory. It gave up six-tenths of a percent to close at 11,718. Got more mighty fine weather ahead this weekend, even if it's not as warm as today was. Tonight, clear skies dipping to freezing. Tomorrow and Sunday, sunshine returns. Tomorrow's the chillier day, about 40 degrees tops. Sunday should rise to about 51. 44 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture. Family owned and committed to sustainability, community, and quality. Seven locations across Mass and New Hampshire. CircleFurniture.com. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that bring joy to your life. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England, and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order by noon tomorrow for Monday delivery of any of our four choices, including a 12-month Flower of the Month subscription that begins with a rose arrangement on Valentine's Day. Visit WBUR.org. And taking 30 seconds out now to encourage you to go to the phone to go online first and take a look at these beautiful offerings from Winston Flowers, and then call 
call us or pledge online, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And be part of the tradition of people who send Winston flowers to their valentine and support WBUR at the same time. Four different choices. Again, you can see them all online. We very much appreciate your support, and your valentine will very much appreciate the flowers. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include downtown Boston's new third space, pop-up art gallery, live performances, lunch hangout, and Thursday night events. More at downtownboston.org slash third space. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Today, thousands of children and teens going through mental health crises are stuck in hospital emergency rooms because psychiatric units are full. But in Massachusetts, some are offered an alternative, intensive therapy at home. From member station WBUR in Boston, Martha Biebinger reports, and a warning, there is a mention of suicide in the story you're about to hear. Counselor Laura Palazzotti lays a worksheet on the table in front of 12-year-old Haley. Have you ever done an emotional thermometer before? Haley shakes her head no. The oversized picture of a thermometer has blank lines for five emotions from the base to the top. Haley labels the bottom chill. In the upper red zone, she writes infuriated. Infuriated, okay, that's a good word. So when you're infuriated, how do you think you feel like physically? Like my palms get sweaty and I like make this face. <laughs> Haley scrunches her nose and frowns. And then what is a coping skill that you could use to calm yourself down? I could go on the trampoline. Oh yeah, that's a good one, okay. So go on the trampoline. Can we come up with like one more? I could like talk with my mom. Awesome. Awesome, because Haley argued with her mom a lot before starting these sessions. Her anger turned into risky behavior that landed Haley in a hospital emergency room. We're only using Haley's first name to protect this 12-year-old's identity. Things all came to a head one night last October. Haley's parents realized she'd snuck out to meet an older boy and posted sexually suggestive pictures. They remembered an earlier suicide suggestion, panicked, and drove to a local ER where Haley had a psychological evaluation. I didn't know if they were going to send me home or if they were going to like put me in a really weird place. It was like really nerve-wracking. The hospital considered sending Haley to a psychiatric ward, but Deanna Pedro, who handled Haley's case, worried that would be too intense for a young girl whose only prior mental health care was with her school counselor. And then we put her on an inpatient psych unit with potentially kids who've been experiencing a lot of other things. So we reached out to Youth Villages. Youth Villages is one of four agencies Massachusetts hired to provide an alternative to psychiatric hospitalization. With rising depression and anxiety during the pandemic, there was a big need to help ease emergency room crowding. Youth Villages counselors meet families in the ER to map a plan for intensive home-based care. Paula Zadi, Haley's counselor, says the first step is a safety sweep. We look under rugs, we look behind picture frames, we look in the dirt of plants. Counselors see clients, often with family members, at home, three times a week, typically for three months. Haley has stopped sneaking out at night and sending suggestive pictures. More than 80% of youth who've tried home-based counseling in Massachusetts have not returned to the ER. 
Dr. Chris Kang is president of the American College of Emergency Physicians. We see more and more mental health patients, unfortunately, often languishing in emergency departments. And I've heard stories not just weeks, but months. And it's anywhere from California to Massachusetts to Alabama to Minnesota and Detroit. Kang says few states have programs like the one Haley is in because creating partnerships between hospitals and local mental health agencies is a challenge, as is funding them, even though care at home is much cheaper. Haley's mom, Carmen, choked up, talking about why sharing this experience is important. A lot of parents don't know what the kid's going through because they don't want to accept that your kids really need help. Going home rather than to a psych hospital won't work for every child in a mental health crisis. Still, some parent advocacy groups say their main complaint is that these programs don't have more openings. For NPR News, I'm Martha Biebinger in Boston. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. The story was produced in partnership with Kaiser Health News and WBUR. Ahead of the Super Bowl this weekend, a lot of people will be hitting the supermarket or their local carryout to get ready for a game day feast. Food prices are still sky high, but some favorite Super Bowl snacks are still selling at a discount this year. NPR's Scott Horsley has a scouting report on how to feed your friends and family during the game while keeping your wallet from getting tackled for a loss. Chef Aji Abbott doesn't expect to watch much of the Super Bowl on Sunday. He'll be too busy working at the Ooze and Oz Soul Food Restaurant here in Washington. We got the good stuff. We got mashed potatoes, sweet potatoes, greens, uh, macaroni and cheese. And chicken wings. Abbott expects chicken wings will be flying out of his restaurant's doors in the hours leading up to Sunday's kickoff. It was a finger food. You know, you pick it up with your fingers, you watch the game, you're cheering. It's easy to, you know, do both at the same time. You know, it's just good party food. More people are giving and going to Super Bowl parties this year. That's one reason the National Chicken Council thinks we'll gobble up nearly one and a half billion wings this weekend, 84 million more than last year. Another reason for the rosy forecast, wings are on sale. After a spike in prices last year, fresh wings have come down 13%, and the price of frozen party wings has dropped by 28%. The wing price finally came down, but then eggs went up. Must be something to that. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Agricultural economist Michael Swanson of Wells Fargo says both have been affected by avian flu. But it takes a lot longer to raise egg-laying chickens, so farmers who raise birds for meat can recover much more quickly. Two completely different flocks. The eggs really got hit hard, but luckily for us, the, the chicken breast and all those other pieces have not gotten hit that bad. Swanson says there are other bargains to be found on the Super Bowl menu, but like a quarterback reading the defense, you have to keep your eyes open and pick your opportunities. For example, beer and soda pop have both gotten a lot more expensive in the last year. But wine prices have risen only slightly. Wine's a global market, so the U.S. wine producers are under a lot of competition, so they can't price up. So maybe some sangria to celebrate the Super Bowl. Swanson says bacon and shrimp have also gotten cheaper since last year's game. My wife's Colombian, so we always serve ceviche to go along with guacamole, so it's looking pretty good for us. Guacamole prices have also come down to earth. After a big jump last year, avocado prices have dropped 23 percent thanks to supersized imports from Mexico. Lance Youngmeyer, who heads an association of produce importers, says some 250 million pounds of fresh avocados have crossed the border in recent weeks, like a big green running back bursting through the line of scrimmage. 
This is the second highest Super Bowl volume in history for avocados. Of course, guacamole is one of the absolute feel-good, fun-time snacks of all time. It's really popular this time of year, and everyone from the grocery stores to restaurants are trying to capitalize on that. Back in the cramped kitchen of Ooze and Oz restaurant, one of Chef Aji Abbott's assistants is slathering spicy sauce over a big bowl of raw wings, getting them ready for the fryer. Crisp, juicy, and always got that extra zip. That's why people say, ooh and ah. Ooh, that, that first bite, ooh, that's good. Last bite, ah, I'm full. Abbott has stockpiled nearly twice as many wings as he would on a non-Super Bowl weekend, and he suggests home party planners also go big, rather than run the risk of running out. Nothing wrong with leftover wings for breakfast, he says. It beats Monday morning quarterbacking on an empty stomach. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com.